This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Everyone, welcome. This is the Matt Townsend Show. It is Monday, October 24th. And believe it or not, today is National Bologna Day. Bologna. Are you are you excited for that? I don't know. What what is bologna? <laughs> you know, um, it's really interesting because uh, I you know I couldn't tell you. Mm. Is, it I like think hot, need, is it like a flat hot dog? We need to play that Bologna uh, two minute segment that we have some you know at some point during the hour. Um, you know what though. I, I did want to play this really quick clip from my favorite comedian, Jim Gaffigan, who sheds a little bit more light on what bologna is and why, uh, why it is what it is. What's interesting about bologna, it's not just a meat, it's an insult. That's a bunch of bologna. You're full of bologna. That kind of implies bologna makes you lie. I eat bologna all the time. Or maybe I don't. Maybe that's just the bologna talking. <laughs> Are you a bologna eater, Terry? No. No. Used to be. Either. It's also 40-hour work week day. Why would you celebrate that? <sighs> if you only had to work 40 hours a week, I think that would be something to celebrate. No, it's like a labor relations sort of okay. celebration. There's some landmark rulings and overtime pay and rights for workers stuff, but celebrating 40 hours of work? <laughs> now, 35 hours of work. That right. would be great. Yeah. You know, I we were talking about elections, you and I, earlier, and I actually worked in an elections office, and we couldn't work more than 35 hours a week. Huh. And we got all the really obscure holidays off, too. It was, it was fantastic. <laughs> yeah. Today is also Black Thursday. Mm. You familiar with Black Thursday? Yes. Black Thursday refers to October 24th, 1929, when panicked sellers traded nearly 13 million shares on the New York Stock Exchange, more than three times the normal volume at the time. And investors suffered $5 billion in losses. Yay, it crashed. (laughs) And then we had a depression. It was awesome. You gave us the the Reader's Digest version there. Yeah. Uh, So we neglected to mention that Matt Townsend is actually – uh, going to be recording live from Costa Rica, at least this morning, right? Is really? that accurate? I don't believe he's on the show at all. <laughs> okay. We are we are going to be playing uh, one of his interviews ah. uh, during this hour only, but uh, we wish him well. We wish him safe travels, and uh, we want him to have fun, but not too much fun, because that would be a little too much for us to handle. But uh, he will be missed We'll still have a good show, a good week on the show, and uh, yeah. Have you ever been to Costa Rica? I have not. I tried to get there, but our cruise ship kind of broke down, so we only got to go to like, you know, halfway. So, uh, oh man, was it Carnival? Please tell uh, me it wasn't Carnival. Yeah, it didn't break down while we were on it. It broke down before, so they didn't have enough, I guess, speed within the week period of time to get to Costa Rica, so they, they gave us a whole new itinerary and said you could do this or a refund. Hmm. And since you've already gotten time off work and made all the plans, eh, we did this other thing. It was all right. It was fine. It wasn't Costa Rica, but uh, yeah, we went to a bunch of other tourist traps. How's that? <sighs> Luckily, nothing like that has ever happened on the two cruises that I've been on. Yeah. Sadie, have you ever been on any cruises? No. Shaking her head, no. Sad day. 
Well, we're going to toss it over to Sadie here in a second. Uh, Later this hour, we are going to be talking with Derek Mueller, who is an associate professor of law at Pepperdine School of Law. And Terry, he's going to be talking to us a little bit more about the Electoral College, right? The Electoral College could come into play. I mean, Mm -hmm. a very outside possibility in this election. And so we thought we'd revisit this interview because he explains how the Electoral College works and how it could actually come into play. Come on, it's going to happen because we no. all know that the Evan McMullen's going to win win here in Utah. It's like with and... the Republican National Convention. I wanted Cleveland to burn and it did not burn. It was very mm. mundane. The Democratic conventions where all the riots were, where all the problems were, where the people were getting arrested, the Republican convention was boring. So... so. Hmm. Whatever the outcome is that I most want to see, because I think it would make for the best TV, will never happen. Darn it. Yeah. Oh, that would make for great TV. Great that would TV. be so interesting. So we'll get to that here in a minute. But uh, first, let's get to the headlines and Sadie Nielsen. Sadie, what's going, around, what's going on around the rest of the world? Hillary Clinton has vaulted to a double-digit advantage in a new ABC News poll boosted by broad disapproval of Donald Trump on two controversial issues, his treatment of women and his reluctance to endorse the election's legitimacy. Clinton leads Trump 12 percentage points among likely voters, 50 to 38 percent in the national survey, her highest support and his lowest to date in ABC News and ABC News Washington Post polls. Hillary Clinton holds a three-point lead over Donald Trump in Florida, while in Texas, a state that has voted Republican by wide margins in recent years, Trump leads a mere three points, according to what a new CBS News poll has said. The poll numbers show voters' frustration about the dialogue in the race and what may amount to a wasted opportunity for both. 69% feel Donald Trump is talking about things that he himself cares about, while fewer, 46%, said he's talking about issues they care about. Republican presidential nominee Donald Trump secured his first major newspaper endorsement when the Las Vegas Review-Journal's editorial board decided to back him. Characterizing this year as a change election, the newspaper said a Hillary Clinton presidency would mean the elimination of some of our basic rights under the Constitution. And finally, um, we have a great story here about a man in the UK. Um, While the clown epidemic continues to rage on in the UK, one hero has stepped forward to stop the disturbances. Terry, none other than Batman. Hmm? Gary Bedford, a A construction manager by day, Batman by night. Uh, He is stopping the crazy clowns from scaring children. Is this a fat guy in a suit? No, he's not fat. Oh. Pretending to be Batman on the phone, (laughs) Gary has been reassuring worried children in the area that they're safe from the epidemic. We put the bat phone up there to reassure people of the clown situation, and it was really rewarding and really worked out which I'm really proud about. And if you have any concerns that this is really not that important, it really is because um, a mom named Stephanie Dunford said, my daughter is autistic. She wouldn't sleep without the bedroom light on and wouldn't eat her dinner as she thought there was a clown in the garden at all times. She was terrified. And so we made a call to Batman and it put a lovely smile on her face and she's sleeping well again. Nice. That's sweet. I thought you were going to say it was Bob the Clowny Hunter. You know, I... Because that guy's cleaning up the streets. He's in America right now, so I think he still needs to go over to the United States. He's got a franchise across the pond. Yeah, Yeah. they need to team up. For reals. Wow. Thanks, Sadie. So you seem to really like the clown stories. Is that? It seems like that's the news going on around the country right now. I'm just kind of baffled that there is so much news about it. Like, the fact that it made it all the way to the White House... Hmm. That's kind of, I mean, an interesting thing. 
I don't think any other little problems during Halloween have escalated to a White House press being talked about. So, you know, some would argue that Halloween isn't long enough. And so for these people, it this is this is a wish come true, right? To I, just prolong I guess the so. Interesting. Yeah. Terry, you're you're kind of of the opinion though that uh this is not a problem, right? No, it's completely fake. <laughs> There might be some people wearing a outfit or something, but it's not like they're actually out there doing harm to anybody. Is anybody in here dressing as a clown for Halloween? No, absolutely not. No. Unless I want to get arrested. Hmm. Is that on your bucket list? We had, it seemed like we had a story about a woman who had that on her bucket list. Just wanted to get, to get arrested. arrested. Yep. Yeah, she, but she was like 103, so I still got some time to use that one. Maybe happen. Yeah. More naturally. Yeah. Sadie, thanks so much. Thanks for the great work and the great stories. So, Terry, I want to get to this clip that's that's first on our list here because, as we all know, uh, an important step in uh, progressing through life is admitting that you have a problem. Yes. Right? And it seems like uh, the Trump campaign – is progressing. Well, the thing the thing is any political campaign will not acknowledge their weakest attribute, their weakest part of their message, whatever it is. Hillary Clinton really has a hard time talking about email. Okay. Right? It's pretty obvious what what had happened mm-hmm. that there were some issues. She's tried to come forward and say it's my fault. I'm not taking I'm not making any excuses, but it doesn't really feel like she's like really admitting to what she's done there's always a caveat there's always it's the russians it's this is illegal and that those kind of excuses the trump campaign they've had a hard time acknowledging the polls yeah there are a bunch of polls we had the guy that says uh, the lawyer when they were talking about polling and he goes says who remember that guy he was like denying <laughs> yep. the fact that the, the polls existed on that yes. was on cnn if you can play clip one we are behind. Uh, she has some advantages, wow. like $66 million in ad buys just in the month of September, thereby doubling her ad buys from August. Uh, most of those ads are negative against Donald Trump. Our advantage is that Donald Trump is just going to continue to take the case directly to the people. He's going to visit all these swing states many times, as is his running mate, Governor Pence. And we feel that with Hillary Clinton under 50 percent in some of these places, even though she has run a very traditional and expensive campaign, that we have a shot of getting those undecided voters that somehow have said, I know who Hillary Clinton is. I don't want to vote for her. I don't much trust or like her. We need to bring them aboard over the next couple of weeks. So Kellyanne Conway from the Trump campaign acknowledging we are behind So these polls. They're progressing in that they're admitting that they're not progressing. I guess. Maybe they're progressing (laughs) backwards. I'm not sure. But, I mean, then she points out that Hillary Clinton spent tons of money. And in other areas, she talked about how they have a former president in Bill Clinton and current president and first lady who are popular, which is interesting. They're always talking about Hmm. how bad of a president he is. But he's really polling at like 50 to 60 percent when it comes to – uh, Obama's currently po- his current popularity in office. Yeah, and so it was kind of a, a weird tangent as she's going through explaining uh, why they why Hillary Clinton may have the advantage, but says they're going to stick to their message and you know explain to people that want to vote for someone other than Hillary Clinton why they're the best right. candidate. So this is really the classic example of the job interview. Where, you know, the interviewer asks you, what is your greatest weakness? Because you, you still always want to – you want to be humble, but you want to be able to spin things in your favor, right? right. You want to turn it into a positive. Absolutely. So th- this is just a, a really prolonged, expensive job interview. It is. 
that's, of course, an oversimplification, but uh, interesting. But it really is. The story of the weekend, though, that I thought yes. was the story of the weekend, AT&T plans to buy Time Warner for anywhere from 80 to $100 billion, depending on who you read. Okay. It has to do with debt and all this stuff, but it's either 80 or $100 billion. Um, AT&T, they, uh, they currently have a lot of cell phones. Mm-hmm. Right? They own DirecTV. Which yes. is their big in on this sort of situation mm. with Time Warner is because Time Warner has a lot of TV networks, most notably HBO, CNN, TNT. So now, TBS. Terry, we were talking about this earlier, but why would this make Southern Californians happy? Well, or ha- would it? They have the Dodger Network. Yes. That hasn't been on Time Warner. Now, Time Warner Cable isn't part of this. So this oh. wouldn't be fixed. But DirecTV, I don't know. Are they on DirecTV? I think DirecTV is kind of where they've had some issues with this also. Mm. And so there's huge chunks of California that cannot watch the L.A. Dodgers play baseball. And it's because they're on a certain network and there's Mm -hmm. some carriage fees and people want money so they can put the network on the cable network that doesn't have the Dodger network. And these sort of things is what this merger is trying to avoid. Um, th- there's this problem of people cutting the cord and then they go and they just, they, instead of having a cable or satellite subscription, they, they just have Netflix or Hulu or Amazon or these, Sling or Sling, Sling. TV, yeah. They have all these different other options. And so you have these traditional, let's say a, a Comcast or a, De- a DirecTV or a Dish, what they, what they're all trying to do is create online streaming options. Right. right? So if you cut the cord and you're not going to have a Dish or a, or a cable subscription, they're trying to position themselves so they're there. So that they'll pick up your business when you go to look for a streaming option. Like, oh, here, they already have one. It costs this much money. It gives me about 20 channels. They give you some choice so you can pick bundles. You're not picking individual channels yet. Oh. But you pick like there's this group of 10 or this group of 10. Maybe I want a sports pack or a sure. movie pack. And what they're doing is if, if AT&T, which owns DirecTV, mm-hmm. wants to do this, they have a, a – a, it's called DirecTV Now, I believe. It's rolling out here in the next few months. But if they already own HBO and CNN and TNT, then they don't have to negotiate with those companies. They just put those channels on the service. Uh-huh. And they can use that as an offering to say, hey, look, we have HBO. So and, you know, you know it, it, we, we can give you more options and more features that maybe another company can't because we own that company. So, so far, no good news for Dodger fans. Nope. Really no good news for Dodger fans because over the weekend they lost game six. And got knocked out of the playoffs. They did. So it's the Cleveland Indians and the Chicago Cubs, neither of which team has won in many a decade. But, uh, yeah, I'm going to hold out. When they start giving you the option to pick specific channels, that's when I'll sign up. Yeah, people want that a la carte concept, be able to just pick and choose. But they're not going to do that. Because that takes power away from the TV networks and from the cable providers. They want you to have to pick what they want you to pick it's the same kind of mindset of we don't want to give you we we want to force you to have to have a landline so we're going to throw this into the triple play package right right. Uh, so the process right now uh, donald trump came out over the weekend and said that he's against this whole process the whole merger it's bad it's big companies we don't want that hillary clinton said that it's something that needs to go through the regulatory process. There are committees set up. They will review it all and see if it is a good deal or if it does give too much competition one way, you know, that kind of thing. That's what – there's several different uh, committees in the Senate and the House that deal with this. And, of course, Bernie Sanders, he's against this kind of stuff 
Oh. Like down to his fiber, I sent. Love like. to hear so, what he has to but, say. But uh, yeah, so they think the pro- the uh, regulatory process will take twelve months, so it's not going to happen overnight. But it's already started to try to get out there. Where this is this is good for the consumer and mm. it's good for you. And people are like, no, not really, because it just makes a bigger but behemoth you- to, to tell you what to do with your television. Sure, interesting. I wonder if uh, Donald Trump's alleged network would have a problem with that. I think that would – if that does ever actually come into existence, it would probably just be a streaming option. Okay. Or a Facebook situation, not necessarily an actual network. But then again, maybe it could. Well, you, you've got to know they, that it would have Trump in the title somewhere. Yes. That would be your selling point, yeah. <laughs> well, Terry, thanks for that. That's – oh, I thought I was going to have some good news for my dad with the – No. Uh, about the Dodgers. Anyway, we're going to take a break now, and uh, when we come back, we're going to play an interview that uh, Dr. Matt did with Derek Mueller, who's going to shed more light on the Electoral College and how maybe people like Evan McMullen could uh, sway the election. We'll see if that happens. Again, Derek Mueller is the Associate Professor of Law at Pepperdine School of Law. And uh, he'll be talking about the Electoral College when we come back. This is the Matt Townsend, the Matt Townsend Show, helping you lead healthier, happier, and uh, hopefully more productive lives. We'll be right back. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. Uh, we are talking Electoral College today. So when you think about it, you, you've heard in uh, just in the primary elections all of these arguments about uh, Hillary Clinton being able to uh, steal away some of the delegates from Bernie Sanders and Donald Trump thinking the whole system is rigged. Well, when we get to the general election, we got to remember that the way a president is elected is through the Electoral College, right? By the Constitution. So uh, we're, we got to understand how this Electoral College works, or we might also start to think that, hey, something's weird. Something's awry in this system, especially because it really is plausible that you could have the Electoral College go against the uh, the the general election winner with the most votes, right? Huh. So we've uh, found an article that was called The Electoral College Could Still Stop Trump Even If He Wins the Popular Vote, uh, written by um, Derek Muller. And he is going to uh, – he's joining us today. Uh, he's a professor from um, Pepperdine University and has uh, proposed a creative solution to the Never Trump movement. His solution, the Electoral College. He joins us now from Malibu to walk us through his uh, his his solution and also to help us better understand the Electoral College. Derek Mueller, welcome to the Matt Townsend Show. Thanks for having me. Appreciate you being with us today, Derek. It's a uh, when I think about the whole George Bush and uh, 
just the fiasco that that came down with Al Gore and you know the everybody's fighting for the hanging chads. It could be chaos if uh, if we don't have a pretty good understanding of the Electoral College. Talk to us. Teach us about uh, this. your article that you wrote in the Washington Post. How could the Electoral College actually end up, uh, you know, removing the, the, the candidate that had won the most votes? Sure. Well, let's start with a little primer because I think maybe some people forget about the Electoral College because, or, or don't understand right. how it works, right? Yeah. Um, so we have 538 presidential electors. That is, each state gets at least three electors this election. Uh, you get the number of electors for the number of senators you have and the number of members in the House of Representatives. So Utah, for instance, has two senators and four members in the House of Representatives. So we get six electors. Yeah. So when we, when we go to the polls this November, we vote for a presidential candidate. Um, but we're actually voting for a slate of electors. And in November, then, the person who gets the most votes in each state, that slate of electors will gather in December. And that group of electors casts a vote for president and casts a vote for vice president. And they send those votes to Congress. And in Congress, it adds up the total. And it sees who has the most among the 538. And if somebody gets to 270, they're named the president of the United States and the vice president. But mm. Um, we don't. So we are indirectly electing the president through these electors, but there are lots of ways that that, that process can sort of get stopped in, along the way. One is, and this is the one I talk about a little bit in the article, but there are other ways. One is to say that state legislatures have the decision about who chooses presidential electors. At the founding, a lot of states didn't vote for uh, the president. A lot of legislatures just said you know what, we're going to pick our own electors and they're going to go and vote for the president of the United States. And a couple of other times that's happened too. So if you don't like your options and you're a state legislature, you can say, look, maybe we'll just pick electors and we'll pick electors who are actually going to vote for somebody else. Oh, wow. Because the, the electors don't have to vote the way the state voted. That's another option too, right? So we, we most many states have their electors take a pledge or a promise that says, "Well, we're going to really support the person who we're pledged to support." Right? We're committed to Hillary Clinton, or we're committed to Donald Trump, and we're really going to promise it. And a few states have try, have a law in place that tries to enforce that and says, "In December, if you fail to vote for the right person, we're going to remove you from office and replace you." But that's never been enforced before, and there are many, many times in history where we've had what we call faithless electors. The electors show up in December and say, boy, you know what? I don't like either of these people. Uh, I'm voting in 1980. It was an instance where somebody said, I'm not voting for Ronald Reagan. I'm voting for John Anderson. And they just choose to vote for whoever they want. It's never made a difference. It's never changed the outcome of an election, but it remains a possibility out there. And it could, um, I mean, that, especially with kind of the never Trump movement, I mean, Utah is actually a really weird example. We only have six electoral college votes apparently, but um, Donald Trump took third in our state, right? And Mitt Romney now lives in Utah as kind of the never Trump guy, even though there's more and more support coming out of Utah toward Trump. I mean, all of a sudden, you could not carry a state. If this just happened to one state, it could happen to Texas. You talk about the impact Texas could play. Right. So uh, Texas is a large state, and I think if a Republican wants to win the presidency today, they they pretty much have to win Texas. Texas has a significant chunk of those electoral votes, 38 electoral votes. 
Um, and if, if Texas, for instance, throws its support to somebody else, right? if those 30 electors are all pledged to support a different candidate, a third-party candidate, well, there's a really good chance that maybe nobody gets to 270 electoral votes. It's not a plurality that wins. You have to get a majority. You have to get to 270 votes. And if nobody gets to a majority, then we have an even more confusing process called a contingent election, and oh it's thrown to the House of Representatives. And this has only happened twice in the United States before. The top three vote-getters are presented to the House of Representatives, those three presidential candidates, and then the House of Representatives votes, and they vote state by state. So there are 50 states. They get 50 votes. They all vote together. And they get to decide among those three who the president of the United States is. So it could be Donald Trump. They could decide that it's going to be Hillary Clinton. Or they wow. could decide it's this third person who has only 38 electoral votes from Texas. And you never know what's going to happen if that's the case. That is – oh, that would be destructive to the country. <laughs> that would be crazy. But, you know, that's – it's plausible. I mean because it's also plausible that um, – you know, something could happen with Hillary Clinton in this whole process that taints her, but she stays in the election. That's right. I, I think that that's one reason why we, we like a little bit of flexibility in right. this process, right? That there's a lot that can happen between now and the conventions, I think, on the Democratic side. There are lots of things that can happen before the general election. And then I think people might get uncomfortable if somebody is elected and perhaps indicted. Oh, yeah. Perhaps, you know, and so the, when the Electoral College meets in December, they're going to have more information. Now, usually they just are sort of expressing the will of the people, right? They're rubber stamping the results in November. But in an election cycle that's been as bizarre as ours has been in the last few months, mm -hmm. uh, you know, almost anything is possible this December. Well, as a as a you know as a professor who and a and a and a lawyer, I mean, could we handle this? Like, it would disenfranchise so many people. Um, and what what would happen? Yeah, so I think I, I think that it is a little disconcerting for people to think once they sort of see the man behind the curtain, they get a little uncomfortable. Yeah, yeah. They, they get nervous seeing how the electoral college actually works. So in 2000, I think there's no question there were a number of of problematic things going on. One was you have Florida decided by a few hundred votes, mm -hmm. which gives um, George W. Bush. Uh, just over 270 electoral votes, so it's this razor-thin margin, in a decision that the Supreme Court has to step in and by a 5-4 vote gives the ultimate outcome, and an election in which Al Gore wins more than half a million more popular votes nationwide. And so people wow. look at sort of a lot of those factors and say, boy, this doesn't really seem like the process that I sort of signed up for. <laughs> but, you know, in the United States, we have 50 states. They are running 50 elections on Election Day. The polls open and close at different times. Your ballot might have Libertarian or Green Party or Constitution Party candidates, or they might have none of them. Uh, you might have to show a voter ID at the polls. Certain people are eligible to vote or ineligible to vote. So we have sort of 50 different elections around the country, and the Electoral College does a nice job of saying, we're running all these separate elections, and let's sort of bring it together into one pot. Mm. At the same time, I think we all expect that we show up on Election Day and we vote for these candidates and the electors are going to carry out the will of the people. Um, so if there's an overwhelming preference from the people on Election Day, then I, I think it's unlikely that electors are somehow going to sort of deny that will uh, 
Yeah. But, you know, it, it remains a possibility. But then I guess so if it if it ended up becoming a contingent election, it went to Congress, Congress let's say votes in the third person with the least amount of votes. <laughs> And um, that, yeah, the third, let's just say potentially, I mean, uh, you know, uh, what's the word? Hypothetically, a uh, somebody from the Texas nominated or whatever. Um, then there would obviously be lawsuits and then it would eventually make it to the Supreme Court, which would again have to decide. Right. Um, I, I, yes, I would think so. I, I think the court would feel pretty confident that Congress has the power to do that. Right. That right. Congress can choose the third ranked person. You know, a good. You know, sometimes we we forget some of the amazing history we've had uh, in some of these presidential elections. In 1824, we had this battle between John Quincy Adams and Andrew Jackson. Andrew Jackson gets the most electoral college votes, but he doesn't have a majority. So the election goes to Congress. John Quincy Adams engages in what's known as the corrupt bargain, where he sort of does this deal to get a majority of the electoral votes out of the House of Representatives. Mm. And Andrew Jackson is furious. He says, how could the will of the people, which suggested that I was the most popular in the United States, be thwarted in the House of Representatives? And he went around the country for four years proclaiming that message, comes back in 1828 and wins decisively in a following election. So there was – there have been these moments where the, the – uh, where these – somewhat bizarre election procedures lead to a result where the person with the most votes doesn't win. But at the same time, it becomes sort of a mantra or a rallying cry for future political campaigns rather than creating instability in the existing sort of presidential regime. Right. Holy cow, man, this is um, this, this, this is going to make great TV. <laughs> well, absolutely. I think the TV networks will enjoy it. I think they will too. Let's take a break. We're speaking with uh, Derek Muller, um, a professor at Pepperdine University, who also uh, wrote the article, The Electoral College Could Still Stop Trump Even If He Wins the Popular Vote. We are doing a little uh, a little civics class here, a little uh, poli-sci 101 about the Electoral College. We'll take a break. More with Derek Muller when we come back. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. The Electoral College, it could still stop one of the presidential candidates from winning. Even if that person wins the popular vote. And uh, joining us on the phone is Derek Muller. Derek Muller is a professor, associate professor of law at Pepperdine School of Law. And um, he is a researcher and writer focusing on election law, particularly federalism and the role of the states. In the administration of elections, he also wrote a, an article that uh, was on the in the Washington Post. The Electoral College could still stop Trump, even if he wins the popular vote. Derek, welcome back to the show. Thanks for being with us. Thanks. And teaching us what's all about uh, the Electoral College. Now, explain to us why the founding fathers felt the need to, to, to do this, to put the Electoral College together. I mean, we always hear it's, I guess, to protect the small states. Is that true? Well, that, that ends up being one of the reasons later on. Um, origi- 
originally, the founders, they, they weren't sure how to elect the president. They thought, well, maybe we should have a popular vote of all the people. But, you know, at the founding, democracy was still a relatively new idea, and they weren't sure that was the best way of going about it. Others thought, well, maybe it should be the executive comes from Congress, that Congress gets together and votes for the president. They didn't really like that idea either. Maybe the legislatures should do it. They didn't really like that either. So they came up with this process where it, it sort of combined all of them. It would be left to the state legislatures to decide how the electors should be picked. And so the electors would be an indirect way of choosing the president. So maybe the people could vote for those electors. But the electors, in the end, they hoped would be dispassionate individuals who would have a chance to deliberate and contemplate with one another and decide who the executive should be. Um, but at the end of the day, we saw in the first couple of elections, everybody wanted George Washington. And then there arose a number of political parties and factions, and this is John Adams and the Federalists against Thomas Jefferson. And all of a sudden we see sort of a breakdown of this notion that the electors are going to be dispassionate individuals who are going to reflect upon who the best president is going to be. And instead, the electors become sort of uh, the, these pledged delegates who are Federalists or they're uh, Democratic Republicans or they're Whigs or something like that. So originally at the at the outset it thought, well, maybe we'll be able to sort of cool down the passions of direct democracy. And then a little bit later on we see that maybe the election of the president is going to look fairly similar to how we elect other individuals through in, in a fairly direct process. Does it – I mean it's interesting because this year it, it seems like it might actually have a purpose. Um, but uh, it, it almost seemed like we were outgrowing it. Were we were we outgrowing the need for this? I mean, it seems like the Democratic Party is kind of outgrowing their need for a superdelegate. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and that also is creating a lot of tension as well. Is, is, a, is an electorate – is an electoral uh, college member the same as a superdelegate? Uh, in some senses, they are. Yeah, they, the, the, the superdelegates for the Democratic Party are simply uh, the existing elected representatives who get to uh, vote for a uh, presidential nominee regardless of any primary, regardless of any caucus. Hmm. Um, so theoretically, in the primaries, we're electing delegates to the convention. And so there is sort of an indirect process there as well, right? The yeah. delegates can yeah. vote at the convention, and they might not vote for the person that they're supposed to. Now, a lot of states have a rule in place that says if you're pledged to support a candidate, you have to vote for that candidate on the first right. ballot or the second ballot or the third ballot. Um, so there is, again, a kind of indirect process there. Superdelegates are even further removed from the process because they're not even elected. Mm. They, are, they are not pledged to anybody, and their support can go to anyone. So yeah, we, we have these sort of indirect mechanisms in the United States still. Right? Um, most of our legislation happens indirectly. Our legislators pass the laws, not us. Um, but at the same time, there is a sense for a lot of us, and I think you hear this you know, from the Sanders campaign or you heard it from the Trump campaign for an extended period of time, that there's something intuitively right that if you have this sort of groundswell of support, that should be expressed in, hmm. in who wins the election. Right. And um, uh, to the idea of dispassion, right, and being dispassionate, these people are probably even more passionate <laughs> right, the electoral because they're they are in the know, but they, I guess That's we're right. assuming they're more pro pro United States. What's the best decision for the whole country? Right. 
Right. So the what's going to happen in these states is each uh, candidate, you know, so Hillary Clinton presumably in one and Donald Trump presumably in the other camp, they're going to go to each state and they're going to say, here's our slate of electors. That is, in Utah, here are the six people who I'd like to be electors if I'm elected president. So already there's a huge filtering mechanism there, right? They are right. people who are presumably not just loyal to the party, but loyal to them individually. Um, and so it, 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 there's not a high likelihood that these folks are going to somehow be dispassionate. Right? right. They are designed to be passionate, loyal supporters of the candidate. And that's an appointee, really. I mean, right? That's so – it's kind of a perk. Yes, it is. Absolutely. They're often um, party faithful, uh, occasionally donors, things like yeah. that today. They are significant. So the Constitution says you can't be an officer, so you can't be a, an elected official. Um, but other than that, it's sort of open as to who else might serve as an elector. And this is really your wheelhouse because it seems like what this does tell us is a lot of the power still would reside in at the state level. It does, yes. So the state legislatures have enormous power and influence in deciding how this process should look. Um, so most states have what we call a winner-take-all. So whoever gets the most votes in the state, they get all of the electors. But you know, uh, Nebraska and Maine have divided their uh, electors into congressional districts. And if you win a congressional district, you get one elector. And you win the statewide vote, you get two electors, like your two senators. Huh. So, so states have this sort of influence to kind of draw lines if they wanted to. They could award them proportionately and say, you know, in Utah, if you get two-thirds of the vote, you get four of the six electors. And if you get one-third of the vote, you get two of the six electors. But a lot of states have sort of fallen in line with the people vote as sort of the popular vote. They will vote for their electors. We're going to have these pledges in place that the electors are going to support the candidate they want. And it's going to be winner take all because that's the way for our state to sort of flex its muscle. Because if we have, let's say, 38 votes in Texas, isn't it more powerful to get 38 rather than just 22 or 21 right, or something right. like that? Is, what, what do you think is the likelihood that this will be used this year? I think it's a pretty low likelihood. <laughs> I think the fact that state legislatures can do it uh, or that presidential electors may defect is a very different question from whether they will. And so, mm -hmm. you know, writing this piece and thinking about these issues, I, I like to think about what is legally authorized and what people can do and what the Constitution was designed for. But at the same time, and I think, you know, we, we've talked about this and you were alluding to this earlier. We get a little uncomfortable about this notion that maybe the third place vote getter, right, is going to win the presidency. Right. Maybe somebody who doesn't get the most votes wins. And I think that's a very significant um, sort of piece of rhetoric out there that really worries legislatures who who do view themselves as sort of caretakers of the popular popular uh, desires. Hmm. And there's also the blue wall issue. It seems like where Democrats just electoral electorally they they've got it seems like a little easier path to get enough electoral votes because they're not going to all of the smaller states. They're playing all of the large coasts. Yeah. So once you factor – if you think that, uh, let's see, California and Illinois and New York and New Jersey and Massachusetts are pretty reliably Democratic states, um, you know, that's well over 100 electoral votes right, right. there, right? And it gets you actually pretty close to 200. Um, so the, the, 
there are small states that tend to be more democratic, Delaware or Rhode Island or Connecticut, right? uh, Vermont. And, and so there, there is actually a little bit of a divide on the smaller states, but there's no question that I think most of the largest states are reliably democratic. And that creates a little bit of this imbalance for the electoral college. Some of the fastest growing states in the South uh, and in the Mountain West, like Utah and Texas, uh, those states are clearly uh, – leaning Republican. And mm-hmm. the fastest growing regions of the country are are uh, an advantage to Republicans. At the same time, they have to grow a lot faster than they are right yeah, now right. in order to give them the kind of support that Democrats have now. It's uh, I think it's a fascinating um, piece. And w- what would you just say to the, to the average voter that um, – so, so just so that you know, in January we're not like, oh, what a ripoff! <laughs> like they're stealing the election. I mean, part of this is just being informed, I guess. The idea of the electoral college changing it seems near impossible, right? Yes, I think that's right. I, I mean. Yeah, so nothing is going to – we're not going to amend the Constitution by November right. to, to get rid of it. Yeah. Um, at the same time, people need to recognize that we have had – we've had elections that have been sent to the House. We've had elections where the person who gets the most popular votes doesn't win the Electoral College. We've had elections where electors vote for somebody that the people of that state did not support. Uh, so we've had all of these things that have occurred in our history, and we've survived. Yeah. So people will look back and say, oh, but the game is – rigged or there's something in the process that just doesn't make any sense. But So I think being informed and understanding that these are features in the process that we have worked through before and that even if they crop up again, we will be able to work through it again. We can handle it. Yes. Derek Muller, thank you so much and keep up the great work there at Pepperdine. Thank you so much. By the way, prettiest campus on earth, I think. Um, beautiful stuff. Seriously, they just get to go look out over the Pacific Ocean. Just soak it up in Malibu. In fact, I'll be there in July, not to brag. (laughs) Uh, We're going to take a break, folks. Uh, Appreciate Derek Muller joining us. Electoral College 101. It's here to stay, folks, so you may as well use it to your advantage. Or just get involved. Understand it. We'll be right back. Stick with us. Welcome back to the Matt Townsend Show. Uh, this is Jeff Simpson, Matt's co-host, who's lucky enough to uh, sit in his seat while he's away in Costa Rica. Uh, Terry, you watched the SNL debate over the weekend, correct? I saw the clips the next day. Okay. <laughs> Very The show honest. is just so late. The Saturday Night Live is so late at night for me anymore, I just pass out. But in Utah, you know, if you were in California, it'd be at 1130 at night. But in Utah, it's at 1030 at night. It is. Still too late? Still too late. Well, that, I, I there's, agree. there's college football going on Saturday. I'm a little busy, a little, a little focused elsewhere. So this, I mean, they're on YouTube the next day. So There you go. You can watch it there. So we were talking about during the break, this has got to be... You know, one of the wildest dreams come true for Saturday Night Live to have these two candidates running at the same time, saying the things that they're saying. And you said that it pretty much just writes itself. Almost uh, because it's it's comical. They they're they're kind of at some point you get to be a caricature of yourself mm-hmm. as you you keep going because they go back to the same 
sort of bullet points and say the same things over and over, and it's been made fun of so much on Saturday Night Live, people start judging who's the better impersonator, Trump or <laughs> Alec Baldwin. It doesn't, you know. I've really enjoyed Alec Baldwin's portrayal of Trump. It's genius. It's interesting. So what they did is they uh, kind of redid the third debate. The moderator was Tom Hanks sitting in as Chris Wallace, okay. which was kind of interesting. And then you had uh, Alec Baldwin as Trump. And then I forget who plays uh, Hillary Clinton. Kate McKinnon. Kate McKinnon. There mm-hmm. you go. So that's the premise. And we can play some of these clips if you want. So clip three, uh, this is Trump on immigration. Mm. I have a fantastic relationship with Mexico, okay? I have personally met with the Mexican president. I forget his name. I think it was something like Mr. Guacamole. (laughs) I'm sorry, excuse me, Senor Guacamole. I also met his beautiful wife, Taquito. And their twin children, Chips and Salsa. So... That's, That's not how offensive that went. at all. No, and, but what's interesting is the way they do this. They hit both Trump and Clinton on this. Okay. I mean, Saturday Night Live is distinctly kind of more of a liberal tilt on things. But they also go at, at Hillary Clinton for some of her oddities and her not you know, addressing issues straight on. She kind of comes at it from a sideways and they go after her about the emails. So this is clip five. Yeah. Secretary Clinton, now I'd like to ask you about an ongoing issue for your campaign. WikiLeaks has been releasing your campaign emails, many of which raise some serious questions. Uh, thank you uh, for bringing up my emails, Chris. And I'm, I'm very happy to clarify what was in some of them. I'm sorry, what, Carol? What, I'm, I'm sorry, I thought I heard my friend Carol. Anyway, back to your question about the way that Donald treats women. <laughs> and that is how you pivot. So you're just never going to answer a question about your email. No, but it was a very cute to watch you try. <laughs> so there you go. It's so true, though. Yeah. You try. The, the key is in a debate is you want to talk about what you want to talk about, not what the moderator is asked. So you have to find a way to kind of spin it into you, what direction you want to go. And then they try to get you back on. It's just a fight the whole way. So they're they're both good at being spin doctors. Yes. So um, you said there's another good one here from Clint or uh, from Kate McKinnon as Clinton, going on and on about her accomplishments over the last thirty years. Yeah, clip seven. Our next question is about the economy, Mr. Trump. Why are you better equipped than Secretary Clinton to fix the economy? Because Hillary has no idea how to fix anything. If she did, she would have done it already. I mean. What has she been doing? Oh, Donald, no, 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 Donald, don't, 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 don't set her up this way. I'd be happy to talk about the last 30 years. <laughs> no, not again. Back in the 1970s, I worked for the Children's Defense Fund. She's walking around yes, the, the podium at this point. I was a senator in New York on 9-11. Yeah, we get it, we get it. And then it. I was Secretary <laughs> of State, and I don't know if you've heard this before. We have. But I was instrumental in taking down a man by the name of... Osama Bin Laden. Osama Bin Laden, yes. And it does kind of feel that way when she launches into her resume. And it's like, we know, we got it, but... Well, kind of fun. 15 more days. Have you got a paper chain going on at home? No. 15 more days, and then Saturday Night Live will have to come up with something else to poke fun at, I guess. Anyway, that'll do it for the first hour of the Matt Townsend Show. We've got some great content coming up in the next two hours. And uh, if you're just joining us, 
Don't forget that uh, this is not Matt Townsend. Matt Townsend is actually in Costa Rica. But we'll take a break and we'll have some fun nonetheless. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you see and be the good in the world. We'll be right back. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Welcome back to the Matt Townsend Show. This is the second hour of the show. And uh, it's a very monumental day. Today is National Baloney Day. Bologna is a lunchtime favorite for sandwich lovers across the country. But what is bologna? You know, we still have not addressed that, have we? We'll have to, at some point in the program, we will have to play the uh, Casi Carne ad that uh, comes from our great sponsor, Casi Carne, that explains uh, maybe a little bit of about what is in bologna. Hmm. And uh, we'll we'll play it later. We've got another Jim Gaffigan clip who's my favorite comedian, about uh, his theory on baloney. But uh, also today is the 40-hour work week day, which, oh, this Terry, is, you're... This, this is appetizing. Let me, let me just interrupt okay, for a moment. Okay, sure. The US, this is from, Wiki, from uh, Wikipedia, so everything's true. The U.S. <laughs> government regulations require American baloney, or bologna, bologna, if you want to say all the consonants, to be finely ground without visible pieces of lard. Hmm. It could be made out of chicken, turkey, beef, venison, or soy protein. Mmm, some venison bologna. That sounds good. It says it's not an Italian product, and several differences among processes and ingredients are seen. Okay. So there's a difference between like a bologna sausage, if you go to like a, a, an Italian butcher and they, they've made a product for you, versus what you get in the plastic at the grocery store. Do you think there are any restaurants out there serving bologna and you don't know it? Like the the, the good bologna versus the sandwich meat? There, there's a good bologna? I don't know. I'm asking. <laughs> I'm saying are we, are we dealing with different qualities of meat product here? Hmm. Which is why I think we get back to our uh, the, the, the piece you put together Yeah, as we talked about mystery meat basically and what's out there. You know what? Could you just play that second Jim Gaffigan clip that maybe this will help? Okay. Who decided on the pronunciation of the word baloney? All right, uh, how do you want to pronounce this word? Baloney! I don't know if you saw, there's a G in the word. I don't see no G, baloney! Okay, well, the word does end with an A. We're going with baloney! Trust me, I came up with Colonel. <laughs> hmm, interesting. So the same guy that came up with the spelling for Colonel came up with baloney. Makes total sense. I knew it had to have had some sort of army tie in there. Right. Hmm. Interesting. So we've got some, speaking of interesting and scary too, we've got some very scary stories coming up here, which is fitting because Halloween, as you know, is next Monday. But uh, would you believe that there is a syndrome called Rapunzel syndrome? Hmm. What do you think that would be about? Not sure. Well, we'll get to that in a second. Also, a, uh, it seems like a sheriff's department has taken a uh, a property that they've seized for a little joyride. 
We'll mm. get some more details on that. It kind of reminded me of the film Ferris Bueller's Day Off. I was going to say that, yeah. But uh, first and foremost, we do need to get to Sadie Nielsen and the headlines. Sadie, what's going on around the country? Hacked emails published Saturday by WikiLeaks see Hillary Clinton's campaign weighing the pros and cons of having their candidate give a major speech on race issues in America. In a conversation in February of this year, Clinton's chief speechwriter emailed other staff to suggest such a speech could show Clinton's sustained and comprehensive commitment to minorities. However, he wrote the speech could also unintentionally end up elevating questions that aren't yet being widely asked and introduce new damaging information, especially Clinton's use of the term super predator and the two a lot more voters. Republican Donald Trump gave a wide-ranging speech in Gettysburg, Pennsylvania on Saturday, outlining his plans for his first 100 days in office of elected president. Touted by his staff in advance of the event as a very specific detailed vision for economic and physical security, the speech largely took a list format as Trump outlined legislation and executive policies he intends to implement. Among other points, he offered six proposals for cleaning up Washington corruption, seven ways to protect American workers, and five actions to restore rule of law. Donald Trump on Sunday linked the successful enactment of his policy agenda to the election of Republican majorities in the House and Senate one day after he outlined his priorities for his first 100 days as president. The Republican nominee tied his agenda to a Republican House and Senate three times during his rally here on Sunday evening and urged voters to help him reelect Republicans all over the place. Trump said, adding later that the Republican majorities would help him immediately repeal Obamacare and swiftly enact the items in his agenda. And finally, yes. Ah, I just love Target. Don't you love Target, Jeff? Target is one of the greatest things on earth. Target really is. It really is such a great, happy place. <laughs> Terry is not allowed to As comment Terry, on this. Terry rolled it's his a, eyes. It's a store. <laughs> it's really great. I don't care if Terry doesn't like it. All Anyways. the stores have the same things. It's just different packaging. <sighs> Okay, well, there was a West Virginia couple who expressed their love for each other and Target by recreating their wedding photos in the store for their one-year anniversary. Oh. Uh, photographer Callie Lindsay snapped the unique photos of bride and groom Lauren and Corey Rex Road after Lauren said the Target store was the only thing missing from their wedding shoe a year prior. Uh, the newlyweds took a walk down the home goods aisle of Target, fed each other popcorn and ices in the cafe, snuggled on the display couch in aisle C13. Um, and Rex Road sh- told ABC News there's not a lot to do in Morgantown. And so her and her- apparently, yes. Yeah. Sh- her and her husband spent a lot of time at Target with her husband throughout the first year of their marriage. Okay, now you tell me that Target gave them some sort of a gift card as a result of this. I'm assuming yes, and it probably happened after the photo shoot happened because it's pretty good publicity. After, after they asked them to leave because they were using all their furniture. Yep. <laughs> you know, um, that, that brings up a good point because I remember uh, – when we had our photo shoot for our wedding, the one thing that I thought uh, after I viewed the photos was, you know, these are great, but we could we really could have used more Target in these photos. Hmm. Yeah, that's what I think all the time. Like, I have the beautiful mountains in the background. I have my wedding dress on, but all I'm missing is that giant Target red. Hmm. Yeah. Okay. So Terry thinks that it's just a store, but if you had to choose between Target and Walmart – Target 100,000 times over. It depends on what I need. They don't both have the exact same selection. That's a good point. Even at a super Target, I probably would not go grocery shopping there. That's true. But the only reason I go to Walmart for groceries is because that's the only option I have. 
Oh, that's really sad. Ah. Sadie, thank you so much. Uh, Wow. Did you take your wedding photos at Target? No. Thank you. We were at some park where there was a bunch of decaying leaves everywhere. I mean, it was fall. It was beautiful. So, (laughs) decaying leaves. Wow. So we... Yes, death. We love the season. (laughs) I mean, fall. It's great. Go on. We took our wedding photos in, in the fall, too, and our photographer was so... He was so dedicated. He was on the floor, on the ground, mm. shooting up. And then also he had his partner get up into the trees, shake the limbs of the trees so that leaves would be falling down in the background. Oh, wow. So when you see our wedding photos, they look like the generic photos that come in the picture frames that you buy in the store. Nice. They're that good. I mean, I guess they're not always that good, but ours was that good. Anyway, uh, speaking of scary – were we speaking of scary? No, but we can make a rough transition. Okay. Let's make that transition. Uh, Rapunzel, Rapunzel, let down your hair is the famous fairy tale cry. We talked about a Rapunzel syndrome. We mm. teased it anyway. But real life moved from grim to gruesome for one 38-year-old woman in the, in the United States who had a giant 15-centimeter hairball in her stomach. Bull. She's not a cat either, so no. this is impressive. She is one of only a handful of documented cases of Rapunzel syndrome. Apparently it's happening enough that they have a syndrome. It's caused by people plucking and eating their own hair. Mm. <laughs> Thank you, Reed. So the woman who has not been named, thankfully – and, you know, luckily for her, she developed sudden vomiting and constipation. Meanwhile, her hmm. stomach swelled as it filled with liquids and gas. She had gone off food for a year, lost 15 pounds in the previous eight months, and by the time she reached the hospital, was unable to keep down any food. Hmm. Doctors in Arizona initially gave her donor blood to tackle her anemia, but when they performed abdominal surgery, they uncovered a six-inch by four-inch ball of densely packed hair in the stomach and then another 1.5-inch by one-inch hairball in the small intestines. Hmm. They should have called in a specialist. You know what I mean? Like Roto-Rooter. They deal with this stuff all the time. So, you know, this is, of course, the old Rapunzel diet that we've heard so much about where if you want to lose the weight, just start eating your own hair. Hmm. Because I, I think there's good protein in your hair. I think um, it's mostly dead. Dead protein? Dead hair. Well, dead protein is – oh, I see. <laughs> you know I mean? It, 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 once it gets out to the point that, that she's consuming, it, there's nothing there. It's just sort of – So I love, I love how the article goes on though. There have only been 88 other reported cases of Rapunzel syndrome. Only. Only 88. Right. So isn't one enough? Could be. But I guess if you only had one, then it wouldn't be a syndrome. So scary and very disgusting. That's gross. You know, this segues very uh, well into the next story that we have here for you. A four-year-old girl has has had 80 worms removed from her ear mm. after an insect attracted to foul smells and dirty conditions entered the orifice. Yeah. Okay, I, this would be a little funnier, and no, this if it is, wasn't a four-year-old girl. Just so you know, this is all from our British press. Okay, right? They love this kind of stuff. Sure, right? That's why it's, there's references to the United States and stuff because it's the British press. But they just they love 
just the grosser it is, they want to put it out there. They want you to see it. They they pull it out of India and China and yeah. even all over Europe. There's just people and you get this mass amount of people. And like you said, 88, right? But there's billions of people on the planet. But 88 people have had the Rapunzel syndrome. And they found the it's story. Still, it's still too much. So now we're 80. down to a four-year-old girl. Something crawls into her ear. Yes. And now she has worms. 80 worms. Oh. It, you know, it kind of reminds me of that show Night Gallery. Do you ever see the Night Gallery? No. So Rod Serling, when he was finished with The Twilight Zone, came up with a show called Night Gallery. And uh, there was an episode where this guy, to get rid of this other guy, he has he hires somebody to put a worm into this guy's ear. And uh, <laughs> the guy uh, mistakenly, mistakenly puts the worm in his ear, the guy that hired, that hired to do this evil deed, and it turns out that – I don't want to give anything away, but the worm was a female and mm. lays all these eggs. And so the worm goes through your brain. And anyway, wow, gross. But yeah. this is real life. This really yeah. happened. The girl from a small village in central <laughs> India had started to suffer extreme pain and itching in her left ear a week ago. And I can identify with this a little bit, this next part. At first, her parents thought she was overreacting. Mm. Um. <laughs> Hey, do you ever feel that way when your when your kid complains about pain or he doesn't mm-hmm. want to eat his dinner because he his stomach hurts or something like that? Over the weekend, my kid likes apple juice, mm-hmm. but we've only given like the frozen concentrate type. Right. Instead, we got him sort of the the pureed version. They puree the apple, and that's the apple juice. And he's like, "It's gross. I don't want this." It's the same thing. Oh, it's gross. I can't do this. Just drink it. No, I'm not. And it's a huge fight. That sort of reasoning does not work on kids. No, they. I mean, if if they don't like mashed potatoes, you can't you can't say to them, "This is the same thing as French fries." What does work you know? is when he stubs his toe and then falls into a big heap, and he's crying, and my toe hurts. I go, oh, "I'll help you," and I go grab some scissors and I say, "Just let me cut it off, and it'll be fine." No, no, don't you know? And then it's done. I love that. cutting it off would be worse. Yes. Some people say it's tormenting a child. I think it's constructive. But continue with this girl, four years old. <laughs> four years old. Her parents thought she was overreacting when yes. she said, uh, this really, really hurts. But when she started crying continuously, they eventually took her to ho- to the hospital on October 8th, The uh, which is a little while ago. The head of the ear, nose, and throat department at the hospital gave her a thorough examination and was shocked to find an insect called genus Chrysomia inside her ear, which had laid nearly 80 eggs. Mm. We've had previous cases where they've had two or three eggs, but this is the first time we've seen anyone with such a huge amount. The girl had to endure two sittings to remove the 80 worms, each lasting nearly 90 minutes. And four-year-olds just love to sit still. They love that. They love people poking and prodding inside their ear and... Wow. Yeah, no. <laughs> oh, well, I hope she's all right. And I hope that uh, her parents regulate the, the cleaning of her ears and body in general a little better going forward. Oh, my goodness. That is so yeah. fitting. And if you haven't seen that episode of Night Gallery, read. You got to go check it out. All right. It'll, it'll help you sleep better at night. So those are just some of the fun stories that we have in store for you today. We have several more and hopefully some more clown-related ones. But uh, up next, and this goes along really well with what we've been talking about because you want to make sure that you have good health. And it's no secret that exercising helps you uh, have good physical health. But did you also know that exercising can help your mental and emotional health? 
Well, coming up next, we have a very special guest, uh, Dr. Edward Laskowski, who is a physiatrist in Rochester, Minnesota. He'll be talking to us a little bit more about those mental and emotional benefits of exercising. That's coming up next on the Matt Townsend Show. Stay tuned. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Matt Townsend Show. This is Jeff Simpson. I'm filling in for Matt while he is away in beautiful Costa Rica. Hope he has a good time there. You know, the holiday season is on the horizon, and with that comes plenty of candy, large meals, and cold days spent indoors. But before the holidays get here and you lose your summer body, maybe take a moment and think if there is some way you can look to, if there is someone you can look to as an inspiration of health. Dr. Edward Laskowski of the Mayo Clinic believes that your personal physician should be a role model for your health. Dr. Edward Laskowski, thank you so much for being on the Matt Townsend Show. Welcome. My pleasure, Jeff. Great to be here. Now, the very first question I want to I ask you, I'm a little embarrassed to ask, but none of us in here before had ever heard of a physiatrist. Okay. <laughs> yeah, well, that's the specialty of uh, physical medicine and rehabilitation. So that's the shortened version of our specialty. So we deal with a lot of non-operative musculoskeletal conditions. We also deal with a lot of rehabilitation issues regarding stroke and spinal cord injury and pediatric rehabilitation, geriatric. So it really runs the gamut of a lot of things. But um, we have a special interest also in the sports medicine and, and wellness, preventive aspects of uh, health care, too. And uh, keeping people out of preventing injuries and keeping them uh, out of situations where they may need medical, medical care. So. That's great. Man, I'm never going to forget that. And I'm, I'm so grateful that you're on the program here today because this is a topic that, uh, that, I, that should be important to me as well. Um, I, I just want to get your two cents on the matter. You know, obviously, it's a problem in America today. Uh, for people to have a sedentary lifestyle, it's it's a big problem. How serious is that problem, though? Well, Jeff, about 70% of our nation is overweight, obese, and, and exhibits a sedentary lifestyle. So this is a, a serious health care problem. I, I had the privilege of serving on two presidents' councils on physical fitness, and really on both, both those terms under two separate administrations, it's one of the main things we focused on. It's, um, this is about a $250 billion problem in our health care economy when you consider the effects of type 2 diabetes and other heart diseases and things that fall in under obesity. Uh, so it's, uh, it really isn't going away. It's kind of the elephant in the room. And, and now I think our culture is almost getting used to it. Um, it was interesting. A recent study came out and, and, and looked at parents' perceptions of whether their kids were, were overweight or obese. And, and despite the number Numbers, uh, the parents actually didn't correlate with the perception. Their perception was, oh, their, their kids were fine. Yet, uh, so we're, we're almost uh, not even continuing to recognize this problem. Wow. It's interesting that you bring that up about kids, you know, because obviously that is a growing problem in the country. And it's something that as a parent of, of two children myself, that's something that I often worry about, like, oh, don't turn out like me. <laughs> um, so you came out with a very interesting article about how doctors themselves really need to be the ones to set the example uh, in staying healthy. So what I mean, what effect does a doctor's personal health 
have on their patients? Well, Jeff, it's like you said, doctors, as well as all of us, are role models. People are watching all the time, and, and walking the walk really carries great power. And, you know, if, 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 I tell, if I smoke and I tell my patients not to smoke, well, how much weight does that carry? Or if you instruct your child about how important it is to be honest and trustworthy and, and the phone rings and, and you say, well, tell them I'm not home, well, what does that say to your child about honesty? So if, if we, can, we can go home and tell our kids and, and our peers, our families about, oh, man, I heard this great lecture and we need to get active, you need to get active, this is how good it is for you, and, but if we're not doing it ourselves, then, then it's not going to carry as much weight. So if I sit back here and I'm 100 pounds overweight and I say, well, you need to be active and you need to lose weight, well, they might have, well, boy, it's, I'm not seeing it in you, Doc, so <laughs> it, may not, <laughs> it may not really produce the effect that we want. So I think in, in any, you think of an employee or employer relationship, anything, if, if a person walks the walk, we kind of follow that person. But if, if what they're saying and what they're doing are different, um, not as easy to follow. Those are all great points. I, you know, when you were mentioning those, I thought of swearing, too. You know how we, I don't know that any parent would want their child to go around swearing, but you really have to watch what you say because they're going to copy what comes out of your mouth. You know, kids are sponges. They really pick up what's around them. And, and again, even, even adults, too. I, it's interesting. Uh, one of my secretaries, who I, I do a lot of lectures on this topic and all, and she's, she's reading my slides and my, my articles and everything, and she's lost over 100 pounds. <laughs> you know, and, and it's interesting because in her cubicle then, you know, her, her cubicle mates are saying, well, what are you doing? You know, how'd you yeah. do that? Or, how, you know, can I, can I join you on your walk? Or what, what are you eating now? What's that lunch thing you're doing here? And, and so it's, it really is she's kind of being a role model to those around her. So we are to our families for sure. We are to our friends and, and family members. But we're also, you know, th- those we affect around us, um, we're, we're an influence there too. Exactly. Um, And, you know, it's interesting because even from an early age for me, I could recognize the importance of this because my dad is probably when I was in junior high or high school, he developed uh, type 2 diabetes. And so at the very beginning anyway, he expressed an interest, or at least my mother did, (laughs) expressed an interest in him being healthier. And I remember his – it was either his dietician or his – diabetes coach came over to our house to give him some tips. And this man was extremely overweight. And I I remember all of us thinking, this is the guy that's going to coach my dad into improving his health. So there's certainly a lot of truth to that. Right, right. It really is. And I, I think, uh, you know, the, the one thing about all this is it's really, the, the, they're simple, but they're hard. But, but exercise and activity, boy, if you could bottle all the beneficial effects of exercise, it would be the best-selling medication ever invented. I mean, it really is for all of our, for our physical health, uh, the reduction in heart disease and type 2 diabetes, as you mentioned, and stroke and to aiding in weight loss and weight maintenance. And uh, a recent study showed that, that actually act, physical activity was associated with a lowered risk of 13 different cancers, including wow. breast and colon cancers. You use less medication if you're active, shorter hospital stays. There's a psychological effect on, on uh, elevating mood and, and eliminating depression. So really, it's, it's, it's just a, a great pill for people to take. <laughs> 
but um, you know we're we're not taking it. <laughs> so any way we can kind of uh, stimulate people to to get on board and and find ways of getting movement back into their life, it's it's really going to be beneficial for them. Yeah. So speaking of that, how what are some things that doctors can do to help motivate their patients to to live that healthier lifestyle? Well, you know, one of the main problems we have in the prescription of exercise is really compliance, is, is getting people to do the things you know will help them. And it's almost the same, like if you tell a person to take a medicine that you have to take four times a day, it's, it's interesting when we do studies, only about 30% of people take that medicine correctly. Really? And, and when you look at exercise and activity, when we recommend physical therapy, and that's what physical medicine and rehab physicians do, they order physical therapy. Well, that compliance with that therapy is only about 30% too. So we need to stimulate, we need to find ways of making activity enticing and, and uh, weaving it into to people's lives. One study showed that if a physician actually writes out a prescription for exercise, about 36 more, 36% more likely compliance with that, with that exercise when it's actually written out and said, ah, just, you know, instead of saying, ah, oh, just do this, if a doc actually takes the time to write down his, you know, walk 30 minutes, five days a week, um, try and get some strength training in and, you know, just writes it out, they're more likely to comply with it. That is crazy. Yeah. Wow. So you're saying I need to get into to the doctor, have him write me a prescription for exercise, and I'll be 36% more likely to do it. To do it, yeah. It's, wow. Uh, it's, it's interesting. The American College of Sports Medicine had, has this uh, movement called Exercise as Medicine, and that's based on one of those principles that if, if docs really get this as part of their practice, it's almost we consider almost like a vital sign is, is how much you move and how much you're active. It's that important because it does influence our health so much. So if, if we can get physicians to be addressing this as almost like a temperature, you know, well, what's your temperature? What's your blood pressure? How active are you? You know, it's kind of making it that vital sign. Um, it, it, it lends importance to it. Even if, we're, if the patient's asked about it, they say, well, you know, doc's asking me about my, my activity. That must be important. Or, you know. So I, I think if we get more of the medical community on board in this sense, too, that, that will be helpful. Yeah. And, you know, speaking of getting the medical, uh, you know, industry on board with this, too, is there anything that can be done uh, or maybe it's already happening? How can the health industry encourage or incentivize, incentivize doctors to make these healthier choices? Well, I think, you know, hopefully in the institution, there's a culture of, of wellness. And uh, it's interesting, even at our facility uh, here at Mayo, you know, docs used to tell me that, you know, years back, if, you know, if they were actually going to exercise and it was kind of close to the workday hours, they would kind of be looked down upon. People, oh, you know, that guy is, you know, taking some time off and doing exercise, you know, and, and really, no, that's a good thing. He's, he's helping his body so he can then help his patients. So, and I'm not saying at the expense of other, other things or, instead of, but, but really, you know, having this culture of wellness that, yeah, we want you to be well, we'll make provisions for you to be well. Um, we have at our, our, our campuses uh, opportunities on site for uh, exercise. There's a, we have a beautiful uh, healthy living center that people, our, our physicians as well as all of our employees can access at very minimal charge. It's actually incentivized, meaning the more you go, the less you will pay. Uh, because we know that that healthy workers actually cost less money to insure, so um, you know having opportunities that are easily accessible, 
Um, we actually have uh, in our work group groups what we call wellness champions, and these are specific individuals uh, in, interested in wellness that can promote activity among their work groups. So, you know, as simple as having a bulletin board, opportunities for, you know, group exercise or, or healthy eating options, things like that, and just establishing that culture of, hey, you know, this matters to us, and, and we want to give you strategies and ways in which you can uh, incorporate uh, healthy habits into your lifestyle. Wow. That, you know, and it brings up another point that I want to get to when we come back uh, from break. We'll take a quick break. And uh, we're talking to uh, Dr. Edward Laskowski, who is a physiatrist in Rochester, Minnesota, and is affiliated with the Mayo Clinic. He received his medical degree from Northwestern University Feinberg School of Medicine and has been in practice for more than 20 years. We'll take a quick break and we'll come back and continue this discussion with Dr. Laskowski. Here on the Matt Townsend Show, where we're hopefully helping you to lead healthier and happier lives. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Matt Townsend Show. We have been very, we've been having a very interesting conversation here with Dr. Edward Laskowski, who is a physiatrist in Rochester, Minnesota, and is affiliated with the Mayo Clinic. And before the break, we were talking about uh, ways to incentivize people to exercise and, and also ways to incentivize uh, the doctors themselves to be in, in good physical condition. And Dr. Laskowski, I wanted to ask you another question that's that's related to incentivizing doctors. Y- you know that there are programs out there, uh, physical facilities, clubs, uh, health clubs that people belong to where they can, you know, put in a pot of money and if they're able to lose the weight, then they get that money back or they, you know, they're incentivized some other way. But is there any kind of are there any health facilities that are maybe incentivizing their doctors that way by either having some sort of a contest or saying that you put in this money and if you can keep off the weight then you get that money back have they tried anything like that well it's a good point jeff and we're looking at the role of incentive uh you know incentive just incentivizing these programs um at Mayo Clinic, like I say, what we do for our docs as well as the as all our employees is um, have a utilization benefit. So we know that that a, a healthy lifestyle produces less uh, medical care cost, and uh, so we incentivize that. So the more you use our our healthy living center, the cheaper it is to belong to it. So it actually is based on the number of times you go. So the more times you go, the less your monthly uh, payment will be. So so those types of things, I, I think positive incentives are always good <laughs> rather than yeah. some places that are going to negative incentives too and that if you are a certain percent overweight or, or, or such, they may have a, a penalty or charge more for health care. But I think the positive ones are the ones that, that work the best and those are the ones that are being studied now. So incentivization is, is a good thing in, in, this, in, a, in encouraging use um, because we know it pays off. It's even good business sense. We know these people will cost a, a company or a health care uh, uh, facility less money in the future. And we're, we're starting to get more data now, what we call longitudinal data, meaning studies over time, because it's, 
it's interesting. Wellness or prevention doesn't doesn't always get the uh, funding or the study that it, that maybe it should. Mm. We're we're kind of treating the end results of of all these of a lot of various conditions. Um, you can think of heart bypass surgery, and that's a very good surgery, but a very costly procedure, and it's kind of correcting something that that already was uh, was done to your system. Uh, we want to again find ways in which you don't have to have that bypass surgery, that your healthy lifestyle and your, your eating as well as your activity will keep you in good status, that, that you won't need that. So that, that, again, is less expensive even to our healthcare economy not to have to do that bypass if we can prevent people from having it. So incentive programs that actually incentivize people to do healthy behaviors, um, stopping smoking, for example, too, um, those, are, those are all good things, and that can carry some weight also in an institution. Yeah, and clearly there is no one-size-fits-all solution, right? Because, you know, you brought up smoking just now. People see the warning on the side of the cigarette carton. They know that smoking is hazardous to their health, and yet they continue going on in the same behaviors that are just deteriorating their health significantly. I think that's a great point, Jeff, and and I think... You know, there are various, some people may not like to go to a, a health club. You know, some people love the social aspect. They love the camaraderie and, and, and all, and they, they just get energized and charged by that environment. But some people say, oh, man, every time I don't want to put on spandex, and I don't want to be in that environment and everybody watching me exercise and activity. That's okay. You know, there's a bunch of different ways that you can get active. So the more um, the more strategies we have, and that again, if if your physician or, or healthcare provider can can work with you on those, well, what's your barrier? What's why aren't you active? What's the what's the thing that's preventing you the most from being active? Um, you can strategize and hopefully solve that. Uh, a lot of this is is very you know people think of it as being oh man I have to be you know sweating bullets and running for an hour every day and it's just a lot of it is weaving activity throughout your day and uh, an example here at Mayo we have um, walking meetings so if there's a meeting where you know you don't have to have a PowerPoint in front of you or, or a lot of data we'll actually have a lot of our administrative meetings while we're walking around the campus and we're moving while we're talking and walking so um, that's a way to encourage movement throughout the day. Um, we have our subways here. It gets pretty cold in Minnesota here in the winter, so we have our subways laid out. Um, in, underneath the buildings, we have uh, walking subways. So we have walking routes. So people can kind of just like mall walking, they can kind of walk the, the subway pathways and, and get activity that way. Um, a commute, cumulative activity helps also. So little bouts of activity, smaller bouts throughout the day, they add up. So if you only have... Uh, 15, 20 minutes, it's, oh, man, I don't have enough time. We'll take those 15, 20 minutes at that time. And then maybe when you get home from work, another 15, 20 minutes. And, you know, the more we can weave it into our day, the better. We used to, um, after dinner, we, we kind of set us sitting around the table and talking. We all got up and walked. So our family just, you know, so we're talking about our day and we're, we're walking around our neighborhood and doing stuff while we're, while we're walking. So the more you can weave it into your day, the, the better. Those are all great ideas. And, you know, because that is clearly a problem with a lot of people is, you know, if they they either truly don't have any time or, you know, in most cases, they are 
tricking themselves into thinking that they don't have the time to exercise. So those are all great ideas, things that that we could adopt here. Um, You mentioned a little bit earlier in the program about some of the other benefits other than just physical benefits for regular exercise. I I believe I read somewhere in your article about uh, decreasing the – Alzheimer's. Is that is that something that's in your article? I know that's something that is important to me and a lot of people. My One of my grandmothers uh, died of Alzheimer's disease. Right, right. No, you're absolutely right. Well, one of the, the um, articles in the journal that my article was in actually looked at um, elderly people who performed regular physical activity and found that if they were active regularly, it correlates with apparent protection against uh, the onset of Alzheimer's disease. And that's been building on some previous studies now throughout the years that show that physical activity may be protective against dementia. So it's just, it, it is boggling how beneficial activity is. And, and we were moved, we're, we're made to move. And, and, uh, and when we don't, we, we certainly have the deleterious effects of that. But, but just getting us moving and, you know, the other article in, in the journal that my article was in was a uh, was an article on depression and mood and, and basically they they had uh, people who were normally active they had them uh, uh, be sedentary for a week only a week and when they gave them parameters that measured depression and mood state all of those were were way down they were actually more depressed and had a, a poor mood state um, and then actually in the study it was very interesting then they reinstituted the activity and gave readministered those tests and they came back up again so even a short period of sedentary activity had a had a negative psychological effect on this group. So it really it's uh, in countless ways um, our uh, you know our our movement throughout life helps us physically, helps us mentally, um, helps sleep quality. Um, you sleep better when you're more active, and, and you have a more deeper restorative sleep. So uh, it's again it's our challenge of really getting our culture back into that. Our, our technology, and it's uh, it's a multifactorial problem. Uh, we have technology that keeps us sedentary, that keeps us in front of computers, that um, we have a lot of car- communities based on cars, where our, you think of our old, how our communities were designed around the town square. You'd walk to everything. You'd walk to church. You'd walk to the post office. You'd walk to the store. Now it's a car everywhere. Right. Um, so there's 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 a lot of reasons, but so we kind of have to work at it more now to be active than we we did before. Uh, before life was was activity, we had a, just to to really live. You think of the the early settlers in this country, um, the, the activity involved in just just living and getting meals prepared and and farming and and getting food to the table. Uh, we don't have those issues now, so yeah. uh, you know a lot of our activity is, is has to be generated. So, Doctor Laskowski, one of the you know, and you brought it up earlier in the interview. It's it's in your article. Uh, the great image of if we could bottle all of this and you know give a prescription for it, it would sell tremendously. Um, how much is this going on in doctors' offices? How? Often are they suggesting to their patients, look, you need to be exercising and here are the benefits. And how much, how aware are some of these doctors of more of these mental and emotional benefits that you're talking about? 
Well, it's a great point. I, I think a lot of a lot of physicians may be aware, but maybe not taking that next step of, of really considering it an, an importance like a vital sign, like a temperature, or like, oh boy, you know, you got a temperature 102, we got to do something about that. Or, oh boy, your blood pressure is 180 over 110, we got to do something about that. And the same thing, well, oh boy, you, you spent 10 minutes active this week, we got to do something about that. So, um, me having a, you have that urgency. And uh, when we look at studies, we look at only about uh, 40% of the primary care physicians in the United States and really don't meet the activity criteria themselves. So, and, and one study found that only about a third of adults report having received counseling regarding exercise at their last medical visit. So, you know, that message may not be getting transferred as well. And then maybe if it is transferred, if we're not walking the walk, it may be not be listened to as much. So I think it's incumbent on us and the healthcare community also to to walk the walk and to and to promote activity as that vital sign it should be, and um, you know again provide that counseling. There's there's barriers in everyone's life. We all have uh, a lot of stuff. Uh, everybody has a, a lot of uh, pulls and demands, but there are strategies for for impacting those, and there are strategies for combating those. So if we can identify them and 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 get activity back into people's lives, um, it's it's going to be a, a big population benefit as well as an individual benefit. That's interesting, you know, because I, I, you know, you always feel like if you have a thought, there's probably other people around the world that have had similar thoughts. But I, I can remember going into a doctor's office recently, and it seems like every time I go, they give me a clean bill of health, and they say, "Oh, everything looks good," but there isn't as much counsel as far as you know you you could really use to to shed some pounds. And I can just remember going in and just hoping, without saying anything out loud, just hoping that the doctor would come out and say, you know what, this is, this is becoming a problem. You really need to make these changes in your, in your life. But unfortunately, yeah, I I've, I've have experienced that myself where that counsel and education just isn't happening. And it, and it really is, I think it's really listened to when it comes, I, I, I have many patients who will say, oh, Doc, you know, you look fit, what do you do? You know, what do you do in your life? And and that really resonates with them. I think really having, again, a, a personal story and, a, and a, you know, more than this, this statement we have, you should do blank minutes and blank days a week and all that. And, well, what does that look like? And and I think when the doctor can, can speak to that and say, well, you know what, here's what I do. And here's how, you know, and, and again, it's what we're characterized by. You can have some days that are so crazy it may it may everything come crashing down and but you know it's what we do the most of the time and and the characterization of how we live our lives that's that's really important so if we can kind of have that uh, modeling to them to our patients i think that's a that's a powerful statement to them and i think they really relate to that and i've had a, a lot of people well, this is what doc does you know i'm going to try and do that or you know it's um i think it's listened to a little bit more uh, our current guidelines, just in case for your listeners, are about 150 minutes of moderate activity per week, so that's about 30 minutes, five days a week, or 75 minutes of intense activity, and, and that's really an interesting aspect. You may have heard about um, high-intensity interval training or interval training in general, and that's that's really kind of really going all out in your activity. So if you're biking, you really bike as hard as you can for about 30 seconds, and then you have a little bit of a three- to four-minute rest period, and then you do it again really hard for 30 seconds and then a rest period. 
And we're finding that this is a very efficient way. We, we keep talking about, oh, man, people don't have enough time and everything. We're, we're finding it in a lot of populations, even those with heart disease, those with obesity, that this really is an effective way of, of benefiting your, your physical system. And, and it's, it's helping with weight loss as well. It's helping provide some of the same benefits as those longer duration exercise activities, too. Well, uh, Dr. Laskowski, as we as we wrap up the interview here, um, what you know, cause, because clearly not everybody is going to go out and start from nothing and go to 115 minutes a week. What is what is just one little shred of hope, or what's what's something that can just get people started in the right direction to get to that 115 minutes, even if it's just a little bit at a time? You know, I think that's a great point, Jeff. And I, I, we always say to uh, start low and progress slow. So um, I had one individual who uh, who actually came back when he saw me in a recheck. Um, he brought his pants because his pants, he, he dropped 250 pounds. So he wanted me to take a picture of him with his old pants and, and who he'd become. This guy started walking with a walker. He was so overweight that, that we actually got him about 30 seconds on a walker. And he was like, Doc, I can't do it. It's too late for me. I said, you, know, you can do this. No, I can't do this, Doc. I said, no, you can do this. No, I can't. Doc. Yes, you can. And we got him 30 seconds moving. Next, next week was maybe about 45. Next week after that, a minute and a half. Next week after that, about three. Eventually, he didn't need the walker anymore, and and it was all you know it was all just gradual progression with with encouragement, and uh, you know slow and steady does win the race. It it doesn't have to be done. Sometimes we 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 hear these numbers oh 150 minutes a week, and you go oh I'll get demotivated. I can't do that. I'm done, and we lose people. But if if we can kind of get that gradually accumulated over time, I think that's one of the the keys. And uh, you won't be as sore, you won't be as strained, um, and but it'll it'll kind of get that habit back in your life. Well, Dr. Leskowski, thank you so much for taking the time to be with us here this morning. Thanks for the motivation, for the ideas and the tips. And, uh, you know, everything that you talked about is is in line with what uh, Matt, Dr. Matt Townsend is trying to do on his show. And uh, we appreciate your efforts and the work that you're doing there. We're going to take a quick break. And uh, when we come back, we are going to have a little package from our producer, Leanna Tan, about keeping warm and some ideas that she has there. Thank you for being with us here on the Matt Townsend Show. We'll take a quick break. We'll be right back. Thanks for listening. Welcome back to the Matt Townsend Show. This is Jeff Simpson filling in for Matt while he's away in Costa Rica. Uh, we are going to play Leanna Tan's piece. I promise. I promise, Leanna, if you're listening, don't worry. We will get it in the next hour. Um, we are going to end this hour by going to a movie review that we've put together here. As you know, Halloween is upon us. It's a week from today, and for the past six or seven weekdays, we've been doing movie reviews. And today, we're going to get rid of some of the funnier picks, and we're going to get back into the scary picks. So here is the review for today. This is Jeff Simpson with my next pick for the 12 Days of Halloween Movies. Some of my earlier picks were the comedies Young Frankenstein, The Burbs, and Monster House. But enough of this funny business. Let's get back to some genuinely scary films. Have you ever received a chain letter or email? You know, it contains a message that tries to convince you to pass along the letter or email to someone else. 
often threatening bad luck or even death for non-compliance. You've got mail. Goodbye. If you have, please tell me you haven't fallen for it. Well, my next pick, the 2002 horror hit The Ring, has a similar theme to it. The film follows a Seattle journalist, played by Naomi Watts, who investigates the mysterious death of her niece. Her search for the truth leads her to discover the creepy videotape viewed by her niece prior to her horrific demise. And after watching it herself, Watts' character is in a race against time to solve the mystery of the tape before she suffers a similar fate. Have you heard about this videotape that kills you when you watch it? You start to play it, and it's like somebody's nightmare. And as soon as it's over, your phone rings. Someone knows you've watched it. And what they say is, you will die in seven days. Now, I've never responded to a chain letter or viewed a chain movie, but I have seen plenty of movies that were so bad that the experience almost killed me. From Touchstone Pictures. Shaquille O'Neal. Kazam. Rated PG. Luckily, this is not one of those films. I remember going to see this movie on a chilly October night, not knowing anything about the plot, and afterwards, I remember thinking it was the scariest movie that had been made in years. And the rest of the world seemed to think so too. The Ring went on to earn around $250 million. But what's really remarkable is that this is the epitome of the word-of-mouth movie. It's one of those rare films where the box office numbers increase instead of decrease from week to week. Maybe people thought the movie was some sort of chain letter and they had to convince five other people to see it in order to avoid some unspeakable tragedy. Hmm, I may be onto something there. Seven days. Now luckily, we know watching a videotape could never kill us. Mostly because we don't watch videotapes anymore. However, just to be on the safe side, the next time someone sends you a chain letter... It's probably best you just send it back. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Good morning and welcome back to the Matt Townsend Show. This is our third and final hour of the show. And uh, while Matt is away, we're going to have some fun. Not to say that we don't have any fun when he is here. But uh, it'll be a different kind of fun. He's having his own kind of fun in Costa Rica. And uh, we wish him well and hope he has lots of fun, but not too much fun. Today is October 24th, Monday. And it's a day that uh, is not really celebrated all that much in my home because it's National Baloney Day. And uh, as we heard earlier in the in the program, that uh, baloney can be used as a... Uh, that's a bunch of baloney. You're lying. That's a bunch of baloney. Well, hopefully you don't lie today. And uh, if you choose to eat baloney, then that is your choice and, and we'll support you in that. Today is also the 40-hour work week day, which is something that I'm not familiar with. I've never heard of a 40-hour work week. Why does that come on a Monday? I know, right? 
<laughs> oh, do you have a case of the Mondays, Sean? Oh, oh, every Monday. Every Monday every you've got Monday. a case of the Mondays. Wow. Yeah, 40-hour a work day or 40-hour oh, a work week. That's Now, if you had a 40-hour work day, I would be impressed. Yeah. You know, I'd have to be Doc Brown or, you know, H.G. Wells or somebody to pull that off. <laughs> so, yes, hopefully you only have to work 40 hours and not more. But uh, if not, just hang in there. Even though it's Monday, we want to remind you that you probably won't be working 40 hours this week. Today is also Black Thursday. Black Thursday refers to October 24th, 1929, when panicked sellers traded nearly 13 million shares on the New York Stock Exchange, more than three times the normal volume at the time. Mm -hmm. And investors suffered $5 billion in losses. The crash. The crash. You're not kidding. Wow. So hopefully you're not celebrating that day, (laughs) unless you have a, a, a slightly morbid sense of humor. But that's okay because we're getting closer to Halloween. Halloween is just a week away, and hopefully Sadie Nielsen is going to have some more clown news for us here in a minute. Sadie, am I? What are we doing? More clown clown uh, news? Why don't we just let's just turn it over to her and Sadie Nielsen in the newsroom with headlines around the country. Sadie, what's going on? A study published Monday in the journal Radiology found the youngest football players, ages 8 to 13, who have shown no concussion systems still suffer changes associated with traumatic brain injury just after one year of playing. The subtle changes became evident, however, when compared with brain scans taken before a child started to play football. President Barack Obama is taking an unprecedented step into down-ballot races in the final two weeks before the 2016 election. The outgoing Democratic president is set to endorse 150 state legislative candidates, part of an effort to flip Republican-controlled state legislatures across the country ahead of the 2020 redistricting battle. The endorsements will come in the form of TV and radio ads, mailers, recorded calls, and statements. At least 13 people were killed early Sunday morning in a tour bus crash near Palm Springs, California, the Riverside County coroner said. The bus is believed to have collided with a big rig just after 5 a.m. local time. At least 31 others, including the driver of the bus, were injured and taken to local hospitals. The bus was so badly mangled that firefighters took hours to remove to remove bodies and injured victims. The bus was traveling from a casino in Salton City en route to Los Angeles. The National Transportation Safety Board said it was sending a team to the crash site to investigate. And finally, we have some very interesting, uh, what do you call it, experiments or projects come up on the Matt Townsend Show, and this one is no different. Um, So a San Francisco inventor is taking an aim at bike theft with Skunk Lock, a lock designed to fight back by emitting a vomit-inducing odor. I'm pretty sure this is (laughs) unprecedented. Um, Daniel Idzokowski is seeking funding on Indiegogo for the Skunk Lock, which he said was inspired by the recent theft of his friend's bike from outside of Whole Foods, uh, despite being secured by two separate locks. Idikowski said the hardened medium carbon steel lock, U-lock, which he calls the only lock that fights back, is designed to emit <laughs> its noxious odor when someone tries to cut through it with a saw, angle grinder, or other tool. He said the chemicals inside the lock include a concoction dubbed Formula D1. Gross. It's pretty much immediately vomit-inducing and causes difficulty breathing, he said. Um, a lot of similar symptoms 
similar to pepper spray. That is genius. And that's that's so timely because, as you know, we just had the story about the guy that was trying to steal the Trump sign, and the oh, yes. owner of the sign had electrified it. So that, and we saw the video of that guy being electric or getting the little shock oh, as yeah. he tried to pick it up. So, is there anything that it says in there about whether or not this scent stays on you, just like a skunk spray would? I don't think it did. I think it just it emits the odor. It's not exactly like a skunk because the skunk smell obviously stays on you when you get sprayed by a real yeah. skunk. This just emits the odor into the air and it's kind of like pepper spray where it like falls down or whatever. And so they smell yeah. it, they throw up, and the hope is that they run away or wow. are immediately don't want to steal the bike anymore. You know, so. Pee Wee Herman could have used that in the movie Pee Wee's Big Adventure instead of wrapping yards and yards of chain around his bike. And there was a clown in that scene, too. It's all connected. It all comes back to clowns, really. It all comes back to clowns. Terry thinks it's a bunch of baloney. Yep. It's all fake. (laughs) Well, except for the ones with chainsaws. Those are real. Yes. Yes. That's just in Germany, I think. Mm. It's just a different level of clowning going on there. Sadie, I think that story stinks. Thank you. I'm sorry for that horrible... I really appreciate that. (laughs) Thank you so much, Sadie, for all you do, and thanks for those great stories. So speaking of stories, Terry, you've got a few good ones here that that we want to make sure that we get to. What do we want to start out with? Well, let me see. If there was a party, a lot of people have a problem right now. Who are they going to vote for? They don't like – maybe they don't like each candidate. Maybe they don't like any of the options. If there was a pirate party, would you vote for it? Hmm. Is Captain Jack Sparrow the the, uh, candidate? Could be. Hmm. I'd, I'd rather vote for Barbosa. Barbosa, okay. I I maybe would do it just so that they would have the what is it the fifteen percent that's required in order to be invited to the the debates, right? I might do it just just for entertainment purpose. At the rate things are going right now, why not? Could be, sure. Yeah. In Iceland, apparently their elections are becoming equally as. Uh, uh, volatile, I guess you could say. People there are actually accusing each other of being the Trump candidate in their election. I read that last week. The Icelandic Pirate Party, once considered to be a fringe political movement, is about to score an unprecedented election win. Current polls suggest that it will sweep up around 20% of the vote. As a result, it's highly probable that it, its increase in its shares of seats in the their whatever their legislature is and take part in the next government as a coalition partner to one of the other parties. Now, when they run, they have like six or seven. They're going for percentages and then you create coalitions with other other parties and kind of like how they do it in uh, in England. That's how their government set up. Not here where it's one or the other. Yeah. It's, you, you get a group. So uh, they're, they've got 20 percent of the vote, which means they'll be part of one of these coalitions and have a voice in government as the pirate party. So this is interesting because it kind of blends into another story that I, I think you're going to share here. But so what you're saying is maybe there's a negative connotation to the name Trump. It could be. <laughs> but they're trying to do this. It says uh, the, the policy issues differ uh, across Europe because they're in uh, the UK, Germany, Australia, Canada, Netherlands, all across. They all have pirate parties. But generally, they have a few things in common. Uh, enthusiastic supporters of copyright and patent law reform, government transparency, and direct democracy. So those are some of the things they have in common. Other people want to wear eye patches, apparently, or ride around in boats. Those are pretty eloquent stances for, for pirates. For pirates. Wow. Um, how, how much of a sense of humor does your political leader need? Well, I still remember, it was two years ago, 
Darth Vader ran in like Austria or yes. something. And I think he won. Yeah. Or was it? Was it? Where was that? Croatia? I can't. It remember. It might yeah. have been Croatia. Yeah. yeah. But he but won. It, yes. And so it he was, was able to. So strange. Make a, but people are just fed up around the globe. I think when it comes to politicians mm-hmm. and, well, they, and some of the they, corruptness, they, they need this guy. I'm kind of a big deal. There you go. Absolutely. <laughs> How much of a sense of humor does your president need? I. I think they need to have a little bit of sense of, of humor just to prove that they're human. A poll from ABC News, 74% said it's somewhat to very important for the president to have a sense of humor. 55% saying it was somewhat important, 19% saying very important. Those are the Well, I think a sense of humor there. goes along with being able to improvise, and I think being able to improvise is very important. As it says here, 30% of Americans say Hillary Clinton has a better sense of humor of the two candidates compared to 28% who choose Trump. Hmm. And currently, 40% say neither is funny. That's probably the more accurate number. Yeah, probably. Um, In other news, political signs. Do you have any on your front lawn? Um, No. Sean? (laughs) No. No. Why? (laughs) Because I don't get involved. Don't get involved. I'm also a member of the media, and I think I should be objective. Okay. I understand. Um, as it says here, if you've noticed fewer political lawn signs, the bumper stickers during this election year, the fear could be reason why. November 8th approaches fewer people than usual are displaying political affiliation via signs or stickers because tensions are running high. Residents in certain cities are concerned of uh, people stealing the signs, vandalism, people you know confronting you over your bumper sticker. My wife gets very angry when she sees bumper stickers, mainly because they're ruining the car. So and you got to scrape those off. So I had someone come by my house, and they're like, "So, you know, they're they're kind of trying to see who you're going to vote for." And and at the end, the guy's like, "Hey, would you put a sign in your yard?" And I'm like, mm, "No, no, not at all." And the whole reason is I just didn't want people to have to, you know, people are going to bring up in a conversation something awkward, and I don't want to discuss something that with them and turn into a fight with a neighbor who you know i i have a good relationship with and don't let this nonsense get in the way it's a trap absolutely well you know maybe these these uh political signs could act more like the security signs that people put up you know to deter people from trying to break in or to walk up to your house at all you know like if you saw a, a trump sign on somebody's lawn you probably wouldn't break into that home, or you probably wouldn't want to have anything to do with that. Maybe. Home. I don't know. I think we're on to something so here. So fear of hostility and people mm. reaching out to you somehow because of your political affiliation is why they're not putting signs out anymore. Yeah. So. Wow. Thanks, Terry. We'll get, a, we'll get a sign up in your yard. That'll be our Halloween. That'll be the trick that somebody plays on you for trick-or-treat. Missed it by that much. <laughs> All right. Well, that is it for the first part of the last hour of the Matt Townsend Show. When we come back, as promised, we're going to get into Leanna Tan's package. In many parts of the country, fall has come and winter is on the way. The temperatures are dropping and some people are looking for ways to stay warm. Producer Leanna Tan, who apparently is always cold, is looking for ways to survive the frigid conditions ahead. walked onto campus bundled in my winter coat and scarf last week while everyone else still seemed to be sweating in their caps and t-shirts. And I got a lot of strange looks and expressions of concern from my friends. Well, I'm, I'm 
can usually spot me a mile away because I'm the only one in a crowd of bustling people to be waddling in my layers of winter gear on a sunny October day. I have about a two-degree window of comfort, which means that when even the slightest breeze brushes past me, I get frigid and my teeth start chattering. You're as cold as ice! But I've realized it's not always socially acceptable to bring my big winter coat or fleece blanket to school in 75-degree weather. So I've had to get a little creative. Feels cold as ice, but it's anybody's and to help all of you weather the frigid times ahead as October comes to a close and to avoid all those judgmental glares, I've come up with five inconspicuous ways to keep warm this season. What? Bring a hot lunch. Trust me, this one is a lifesaver. Not necessarily so much that you're putting hot food in your body, but more that you can pop it in the microwave and then hold it in your hands or hug it to your body to keep toasty on your frigid walks from building to building or out into the vast wastelands of the parking lot. Offer to hand out the copies of the slides hot off the printer or position yourself by the projector during presentations. Not only does this block you from the creepy stares of the awkward guy on the other side of the class, but also provides you with your own little heating vent when the projector fan blows on you. Yes, I have saved many a frozen finger with this trick. Let your laptop overheat on your lap. I too used to be one of those people to use a fan under my laptop to keep it cool and, you know, running well or whatever. But then I realized that I was depriving myself of the two-in-one feature of my computer's battery. One, being that it kept my computer alive, and two, that it saved me the trouble of putting on a warmer pair of pants. So if you're at work or in class or even at home, just place your laptop on your lap and make sure all the air vents can't work properly. Hello, Leanna. This is Bert over in IT. That's really bad for the computer. And tuck the battery cord beside you or under your blanket to keep extra warm because that overheats all the time, too. Don't do that. Drape your hair over your arms. I used to enjoy this luxury when I had super long hair. Unfortunately, now I'm deprived of this great benefit. But for those of you who do still have long, luscious locks, long, beautiful hair, just tip your head slightly so that your hair falls over your arms and it'll take those goosebumps away in a jiffy. Bye. Bring a rice pillow in your shirt and pull off that you're pregnant. We are pregnant, so we got the power! Say it! Yes, I have tested this myself in public. It was a couple years ago at a New Year's Eve festival downtown, and I knew exactly what that meant. Freezing weather and a long wait outside staring at my clouds of breath until the clock struck midnight. So, I grabbed a little pillow stuffed with rice, popped it in the microwave, and tucked it in my coat. Then I just kept occasionally lovingly rubbing my newly grown abdominal addition, like pregnant women always seem to do. (laughs) And people didn't suspect a thing. They either thought I was five months pregnant or had gained a substantial amount of holiday weight. Uh, are you pregnant or just fat? But hey, it kept me toasty the entire night. So the secret to these five tips is just to act like everything is normal and that you're not doing everything in your power to keep your jaw from chattering. These are vital survival skills every first world college student suffering through over air conditioned classroom needs to know. So don't worry all of you who are sensitive to a cold breeze. 
the days of judgmental questioning are over. Master these five things and no one will ever suspect you again. Well, I'm Leanna Tan, and that's my little tangent. Welcome back to the Matt Townsend Show. We have the wonderful opportunity every couple of weeks to hear from one of our great coaches. We call her Coach Kim Giles. Uh, She is the president and founder of Clarity Point Life Coaching. She was named one of the top 20 advice gurus in the country by Good Morning America in 2010. She's appeared on Good Morning America, the KSL 5 Morning News, ABC 4 News, and many other local TV and radio programs. She, uh, You can find her at claritypointteaching.com, and she is on the phone with us right now. Coach Kim, we are so excited to have you back. Welcome here with you today. So uh, you may have noticed this is not Dr. Matt. Yeah, they warned me. (laughs) (laughs) They warned you, yeah. You know what? I'm excited to work with you today. Yeah. You know, normally I just get to stare at you from behind the board and, and listen to your wonderful words of wisdom, but now I get to talk to you a little bit in more detail about uh Today, at least, 14 ways to be more emotionally mature. Yeah. And that's just such an interesting topic. What can you tell us about that? Well, you know, emotional maturity is something that we don't talk about very often. So a lot of people maybe aren't clear on what it is. But basically, it's your ability to respond to life, manage your emotions, and really stay in a place of strength and wisdom right, and and respond to life in a mature way. And we find that either you kind of learned this from your family growing up or you didn't. And, and many of us just didn't have parents who learned that from their parents, and so the way they handle life isn't the most mature. And unfortunately, they don't teach this stuff in school. So where do you learn it if you didn't learn it from your family? That is a great point. We had, you know, our guest earlier was talking about um, looking to your parents for your physical health, too. So that this applies to emotional health then as well, it sounds like. Absolutely. And, you know, when you're young, they say between the ages of zero and seven is when all of your beliefs and, and policies and procedures about life get set in place. So everything you experience in those first seven years you're drawing conclusions and you're, you're saying, oh, my gosh, okay, so this is where I fit in the world and this is how people behave and this is what I do if I don't feel loved or I'm not getting what I want. And you literally get this programming in place that you use to drive about 95% of your behavior the rest of your life. So imagine every time you react to a situation, you may actually be reacting the way you did as a seven-year-old. Wow. Wow. 
So if we want, if we kind of want to break that cycle, and I, I got to be careful because my mom does listen to the show, but let's just say there's, you know, you have a parent that is overly dramatic and is so easily offended. How how can we as children of those parents, and again, mom, I'm not saying that's you, how can we as children of those parents break that cycle and make sure that, that something like that doesn't happen to us? Right. So number one, we've got to get some education. We've got to learn some new skills. And we've got to seek out coaches, counselors, seminars, what, whatever is out there and there's a lot of options, but but we need to upskill, and that means learning some things from someone else. Now we we actually have 14 tips that were in my column this morning about how, things you can practice yourself. But I would still recommend finding some some professional help to work on some of those subconscious thinking skills to teach you how to think in a more healthy way, and some communication and relationship skills. But we can run through some of some of the tips from the article. Let's do it. Yeah. Okay. So the first one I recommend people start practicing. We call practice the pause. And what we mean is every time anything happens, pause before you respond and really think through, okay, how how was I about to respond to this? And is that behavior really going to create what I want? Because often that reaction is going to blow this thing up even worse. It, it's not going to create what I would really want if I stepped back and asked myself, what is the end result I'm after here? So this has been really powerful for me even as a parent because when my kids misbehave, if I react immediately, I might hurt them or I might you know, behave in a way that really isn't in their best interest and isn't going to create the kind of relationship that I want to have with my kids. So that pause can be really powerful, but it takes a lot of willpower. And we've got to really be more mindful, which is something that takes a lot of practice. Yeah, and really just great advice for any decision-making that, that we do, you know? I mean, if uh, if only some of the candidates in the selection would take right. that advice. But pause, yeah. Okay, so another thing we want to really practice is putting ourselves in another person's shoes. And a lot of uh, therapists say this is a real sign of psychological maturity. If you can sit back and really imagine what this other person is experiencing on their end, what they're afraid of, what the, what's gone on in their life that may be creating the way they're behaving. Because most of the time, other people's behavior isn't really about us. Even when they attack us, it's usually more about the fear that they're experiencing about themselves and their life and their self-esteem. And so the ability to put yourself in someone else's shoes is a really mature practice. Wow, that's interesting. you got to work on. Yeah. Okay, so putting yourself in somebody else's shoes, taking a pause. Okay, now this is one that's very much from Clarity Point Coaching and what we teach, but I have found that if you can constantly practice seeing your value as a human being as the same as everyone else's and that your value can't go up and it can't go down. Your intrinsic worth stays the same all the time and is the same as everybody else's. What it takes out of the mix is this idea that some people are better than other people. 
And if you function every day from a place of seeing some people as better than other people, you live in judgment, you live with low self-esteem and a constant fear that you're not enough. And that creates all kinds of immature behavior where if we can just make it our policy that all human beings have the same value and we're here on the planet to learn and grow, life is a classroom, but it's not a test where your value is in question. If you, if you can change that viewpoint, it makes you much more mature in how you respond to everything else. Yeah, that I mean, that is great advice for, especially in the workplace. I, I would, you know, there's a lot of that that goes on in the workplace, especially with, you know, the varying roles that people have. And yeah. Okay. So what's okay. next? Do we have time for one more before the break? Yes. But all right. Be more flexible. And what I really mean is that we have a tendency to create expectations about everything, how we think people should act, how this event should go, you know, how things should run. And we get attached to those expectations. And what that immediately, you're setting yourself up for disappointment and frustration and immaturity. And so we've got to get to a space where we can set intention that we hope things will go this way. But we've got to stay in trust with the universe that it's a classroom and it's going to bring us experiences that help us grow more than it's going to bring us what we wanted. So we've got to be flexible to trust the universe and go with whatever shows up, which actually kind of leads us to another one um, about gratitude. And, And real gratitude is about focusing on what's right in your life, what's going right instead of what's wrong, but also being able to be grateful for whatever shows up because whatever shows up, it's here to serve you at some level. Kim, thank you so much for being on the program. We are going to take a quick break and uh, we're going to come back and learn more in this uh, life classroom as you, as you named it. Coach Kim is, uh, she is the president and founder of Clarity Point Life Coaching. And you can find her online at claritypointcoaching.com. We'll take a quick break and come back and learn some more from Coach Kim. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Matt Townsend Show. We have been speaking with Coach Kim Giles, who is giving us her list of 14 ways to be more emotionally mature. Kim, welcome back to the program. Thanks. Now, it was really interesting... uh, uh, during the first part of the interview, you had talked about how when we don't adopt some of these ideas that you have on this list here, that really we're exhibiting some of the same behaviors that we did when we were a child. Yeah, we really are. We we get responses in our subconscious programming and their patterns. We just do over and over and over, especially in the way we relate to other people and handle conflict. So we've gone through a handful of these so far. What are some of the other ways that we can – what are some of the other things that we can adopt to become more emotionally mature? Okay, so a big one, a big sign of maturity is your ability to apologize and how quick you can apologize when you do blow it and misbehave. And I really I, – I think in our subconscious programming, we sometimes think – if we're, we've got to show up as strong, we can't let people see weakness. And so we, we're, we're slow to apologize. But I actually think it takes a lot more strength to be a person who can apologize quick 
and own when they make a mistake. And, and we really respect people more. And I've really found this in my family and especially with my children. If I'm quick to apologize when I've blown it and be vulnerable and own that, you, you know, you've got work to do on yourself and, and this is something you want to work on, it actually makes people respect you more and see you as more mature. Really? Absolutely. A strength to be somebody who will get vulnerable enough to apologize. So let me ask you a question about that, because the, the first item on your list here is to practice a pause, and then the, the item that you just shared is to uh, be quick to apologize. You know, there is the, the sort of uh, way of thinking that if you're mad at somebody, maybe you should go take a walk, take a break, and really think about what it is you want to say before you come back and apologize. Is there is there a worry that apologizing too quickly makes the apology less sincere if you're not taking that time to really go and think about it? Well, yeah, I would still encourage people to pause and think it through and see if they're really in the wrong. And if you are, then be quick to apologize. Uh, obviously, we've got to step back because we get some people who apologize too much. They apologize all the time, even when things weren't really their responsibility. So the, the practice to pause and be mindful is definitely a first step. But as soon as you realize you were in the wrong, own it. So obviously this is a problem. How, I mean, how prevalent is emotional immaturity in the country today? <laughs> well, don't you think most of us are working on this? I mean, really, oh, yeah. <laughs> I think most of us are working on this. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Cool. We all could grow up a little bit. I had a mentor years ago who said he looked in the mirror every morning and said, come on, grow up. Grow up. <laughs> because we all, we all have some growth to do. And actually, that's another one of my points in the article is, is to be committed constantly to your own personal growth. And, and remain teachable and, and be in a space where you, you know you constantly need to learn and upskill and do better, that in and of itself is really a sign of maturity. I would think, too, you know, admitting that you have a problem with this, too, is, is important. I mean, do you think there are a lot of people out there that just don't realize, I'm, I'm not emotionally mature? Yeah, there's a lot of us that don't realize that. And, and honestly... Most of us prefer to blame most problems on other people and their behavior. And so, again, another real sign of of emotional maturity is being able to be personally responsible for whatever's going on in in some of your relationships. You've had a part in creating it. And even if the other person really does treat you badly, you're responsible for the fact that you're staying in a relationship with them. So whatever is happening in those relationships, the more you can own that your behavior is contributing, it it not only is mature, but it gives you the power to actually change and fix the relationships. Because if you're just a victim and completely powerless in it, then you don't have the power to change it. Yeah. So that's good. I mean, you gave us the uh, the the example of the guy that literally looks in the mirror and says, grow up, but, you know, also in a, in a uh, <laughs> not-so-literal way, we need to look inward and make sure that, that uh, we're recognizing that we're the culprit, too, not just everybody else. 
Absolutely. We always have a part to play. We, we can't have conflict if there's only one person participating. Yeah. Right? So we're, we're always in it. Okay. And, so, Kim, yeah. we've, we've, got, we've got a couple of minutes left here. What are, what are some of these other things on your list, and what's, uh, how can you take this point home of, of being more emotionally mature? Okay, so I do have a little test online this morning Ooh. on my website, clarityfoundcoaching.com. If you go to the Natural Solutions page, there's actually a link for a little test that you can go through and ask yourself the questions and see if you've got an issue with being emotionally immature. And this is a great way to start being personally responsible, and it's going to really show you on paper what maybe some of your weak areas are. And then in my book, Choosing Clarity, at the end of every chapter, there's actually an opportunity to write a new policy or a new process or procedure to change some of those patterns that you've had since you were seven years old. The only way to change them is to become really aware of what they are and write a new one. From now on, when I get in conflict, this is how I'm going to handle it. And the book actually will step you through how to write those policies and really create a whole new way to show up and handle your life. And then you just get to practice. And you know what? The more you practice, the better you get and the better your life gets. Coach Kim, thank you so much for being on the show with us. You you heard it straight from her, folks. If you want to know if you're more emotional, if you want to know if you're emotionally mature, if you want to grow up, then check out her book, Choosing Clarity, and go to her website, claritypointcoaching.com, and take the test to see if you've got what it takes to be emotionally mature. Coach Kim, thanks again for being on the show with us. Uh, Have a great week, and if you're out there listening, take the test and try it out for yourselves. We'll take a quick break. When we come back, we'll be talking to our good brethren at Sports Nation, BYU Sports Nation, see what they have going on their program. This is the Matt Townsend Show. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Matt Townsend Show. This is Jeff Simpson here filling in for Matt Townsend, who is in beautiful Costa Rica. So the good brethren at BYU Sports Nation are going to have to stomach me today. Gentlemen, how are you doing this morning? What's up, Jeff? What's going on? How are you doing, man? I'm doing fantastic. Well, t- to be honest with you, I'm a little depressed. Why, uh, why are you depressed? Do you need to talk to a doctor, Matt? <laughs> <laughs> no, I need to talk to you. I oh. my Dodgers lost on Saturday night. Jeff, I'm sorry that your team stands in the way of history. <laughs> and you, fate. You and know what, destiny. hey. I'm a Cardinals fan and so and I don't really particularly like the Dodgers, but I was the biggest Dodgers fan simply because I just don't want to see the Cubs win. Oh, really? Yeah. Wow. You're kind of in the mini- the minority there oh, then. so much in the minority when it comes wow. to this right now. And, and honestly... That's your favorite Green Day song. <laughs> yeah. It's inevitable. <laughs> I mean, I, I hope the Indians win this thing, but, I mean, honestly, the Cubs are going to win they the They have World their Series. NBA title. Get you out just, of the way. You just want the camera to cut over to Charlie Sheen while they play Wild Thing, don't you? <laughs> you know what? Here's the deal. If he really does throw out a pitch, oh. I want to make sure that the hair is cut and that is not like a, a wig he's wearing. <laughs> oh, I what? want him to what? fully commit... And cut his hair like that for real. So I had heard that he, you know, he approached 
Major League Baseball and said, hey, yeah, just so you know, I'd be willing to throw out the first pitch. And they said, thanks, but no thanks. They're like, that would be awesome. Not a winner. And meanwhile, the Cubs <laughs> counter with uh, rookie of the year, that kid. Yeah, or whatever. Kind of looks like you a little bit. Speaking of, oh, of Major League Baseball and movies, I, I noticed that Daniel Stern also posted a video of his character from rookie of the year. Yeah, exactly. That was, that was pretty amusing, too. Yeah, the, yeah, that's what I'm saying. You, you just get the classics. You get Will Ferrell out there as Harry Carey. You get yeah, all the, all those guys. <laughs> they ruin their they ruin their chance though. They had the opportunity of a lifetime to do it last year, and they could have had Doc Brown throw out the first pitch because it was yes. 2015 is the year they were Against supposed the to Marlins have won or something. Yeah, <laughs> that would have been amazing. Well, I imagine you're not going to be talking about Major League Baseball on your program today, unless Bob Euchre is going to call the game. How awesome would that be? From, from what, Mr. What was his Belvedere? Name? Charlie something? I can't remember what his character's name was from, uh, from Major League. But... Yeah, Jeff, we're not talking Major League Baseball. Yeah, you're right. no, you're no, right. we're not. Uh, do you remember him from uh, Mr. Belvedere? Oh, yeah. Loved Mr. Belvedere. Streets mm. on the China. Never <laughs> met him before. <laughs> Anyways. You sing way better than that. <laughs> so, what, a new wrinkle. What do we have coming up on your program that you want to tease? Yeah, it's a it's a bye week uh, for BYU football, so no game this week. So we we go uh, we go reflective, introspective. Uh, first eight weeks in the books, BYU four and four, four losses by a combined eight points, three against ranked teams. They're ranked now. Uh, what do you think of the first eight games? We're gonna we're gonna ask that question and discuss with ESPN's Trevor Maddich and uh, via Twitter hashtag BYUSN as well. So I know you guys frequently bring up this question, but I, I I don't recall what your take on it was. Would you rather lose by one to three points or would you would you rather it just be a complete blowout? It, it, it's an interesting we've been asking yes, that same question. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. That will actually be brought up on the show today. And, and honestly it really depends on on how you I guess how you handle losses. Because if 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 you're right there to the end and like it's just demoralizing to lose. I mean, I know a lot of people would rather just get blown out so that it it kind of takes the emotion out of it, and so they can kind of move past it a little bit quicker. But you know, there's. But I kind of go back to how would you rather go to the playoffs and lose in the first round or not go at all? I, I'd rather go to the playoffs. I'd rather hmm. be in a game where you have a chance to win. Yeah, I mean, it stinks when you lose and it hurts a little bit more. But I would still rather at least give myself a chance. You know what, though? This is interesting because we were talking about baseball. I think as a fan, I would – if I were on the losing end especially, I would almost rather it be a complete blowout. Because me as a Dodger fan, I look at the Cubs and I I look at the the numbers that they pulled in for these games and it's like – they scored basically twice as many runs as the Dodgers. You can't argue with that. The better team ended up winning. Yeah, if, if it were soccer and the aggregate was used from game to game, that would be fantastic. You're like, well, we only need to lose this game by four. Yeah, yeah that would be awesome. Yeah, it's, that's always an interesting question because I've heard from some fans, BYU's played down to its competition. I thought, wait, so they played up to Utah and West Virginia mm. and Boise State? Those were three teams that are ranked and better than BYU. Mm-hmm. Uh, and won those games. So it's it's hard to uh, figure that out exactly. It's a conversation I hate because it means you lost. Yeah. yeah. Um, and, and a lot of times this season we've said, we've talked about, uh, you know, be patient with this. Or ha- we've had these conversations where I go, 
we're only oh uh it's therapy on i'm like I I don't like therapy. That means there's an issue, you know. Like that's real life. But yeah, that's that's. But there, how it there works. are there are a lot of fans though that look at it. You know what? And, and it's probably a healthy way to look at it. But okay, look, BYU lost these games four games by a total of eight points. Mm. Three of the four are ranked teams right now. So it does give you some confidence if you can look at it that way. That look what look how close we are. Yeah, we we couldn't pull it out. But look how close we are to these other teams who are ranked right now. B- BYU, I, I, there is a certain part of the fan base that's counting the moral victories. That's like a really negative buzzword, right? Oh, moral victories. Only losers count moral victories. Well, <laughs> when you're 4-4, four and four, you, you can discuss the means of that. And, and in the uh, ESPN Football Power Index, BYU actually went up a spot this week to number 34. They're ranked ahead of Utah. Wow. 7-1, which wow. is kind of weird, right? Well, and you know, especially since they have a first-year coach, that's not too that's not terrible. I I think BYU and Kalani Stocky are laying the groundwork for the future here where they'll win out in November, they'll probably win the bowl game, so they'll finish with 8 or 9 wins and we'll go 8 or 9 wins from that season. Okay, now we're going. These aren't Kalani's guys. These aren't these systems of from Kalani Stocky or uh, quite yet, put into place fully with those personnel. It takes time to develop something. I would, I would not want BYU Sports Nation to be judged by the first year of the show. I would want it to be judged by the second or third years. Sure. Now, we're in year four um, right now. Uh, we're like a month and a half into the fourth year of the show. Now, we figured it out, right? Probably a year ago, we are like, alright, this is who we are, and now we're pr- really, really uh, we've got this thing going, so yeah, I, I think it takes some time to implement uh, what's really going on. That's a really good point, and that's you know that's a point that's brought up with a lot of TV shows. You know, like oh, don't watch the first season, or it takes two or three seasons <laughs> right, for it to yeah. get good. I've heard a lot of people say that about uh, Parks and Recreation. I don't know if you guys watch I that love show. Parks I love and Rec. it. Yeah, treat yourself. <laughs> <laughs> Matt uh, Townsend called me Jean Ralphio, by the way. Oh my goodness! I was like, come on, really? How he, funny is he's one of the people? By the way, I know he is. Oh. And you know his uh, the the girl that plays his sister on the show yes. is Marcel the show. She does a lot of voiceover work. She was the uh, the lamb, the little lamb in Zootopia. That's correct. Oh Did yeah, you know that? that's right. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and Marcel the show on YouTube. So uh, I'm curious to know if if either of you uh, gentlemen are going to be celebrating today with a bologna sandwich. Uh, no, since it's probably National Bologna Day. I've not had a bologna <laughs> sandwich in years. That's that, great, a bologna. That's what I think. That was word for word correct. It is National Bologna Day. We've uh, we've come to expect uh, National Fill in the Blank Day from Matt every day. Sure, <laughs> and you know, but it doesn't just apply to to the sandwich. You know, if somebody is uh, not being uh, honest and upright, then yep. you could you could just call bologna on them. Yeah. Right? That, uh, like the great Veronica Corningstone of Anchorman. <laughs> Grade A baloney. <laughs> it's also uh, the 40 hour work week day. Oh, I would love a 40 hour work week. Wouldn't that be nice? <laughs> That'd be wow. Great. Hey, and uh, make sure that you clean your body and especially your ears thoroughly. Like with a, with a Q-tip? Because I, I, I do that a lot, and it's, it's caused me some heartache. I've heard that that's actually not good for you. It's not. but I'm, You know, that yeah, wasn't just an aside. There's actually a reason why I brought that up. But uh, <laughs> this is a story that we mentioned earlier, and it's, it's too gross to not share again. Uh-oh. So there was a four-year-old girl that had 80 worms removed from her ear. 
How is that even possible? Uh, 80 worms. So it's a girl in central India, and she started uh, complaining about pain and screaming, and her parents thought she was overreacting. So they finally took her to the doctor, and yeah, the head of the ear, nose, and throat department gave her an examination and found that there was an insect called genus Chrysomia, I think is, is what it's called. He's Insider, actually a quarterback yeah. at Louisiana Lafayette, but yeah. Yeah, he pulls in some good numbers. Hmm. Uh, 80, <laughs> wow. 80 eggs of this insect. It reminds me of uh, hey, it, it happens, like Star know? Trek II, The Wrath of Khan. Oh, yeah. Nice pull. Like that, that, that scene makes me sick every time yep. I watch it. Yep. Nice pull. So you should know that Sean O'Neill is sitting behind the board here, and you guys are just I, making him so happy right him. now. He's like, Ugh! He, is, he is in glee. He's just so happy that, that, uh, <laughs> that you guys are bringing up all these references. <laughs> I miss Sean O'Neill. I just see him in the break room, so it's, it's good to know that Sean's around. Well, Jeremy and Jason, we want to give you guys some time to uh, go get ready for your show. So knock them dead and uh, all the other uh, isms that Matt shares with you at the end. Of <laughs> <laughs> return with honor. Yes. Ret- uh, remember, yes who remember who you are. Yes. Yeah. All right. Have a great show, you two. Goodbye. Great. Thanks, Jeffrey. Don't you just love those guys? Oh, they're fun. Yeah. And they, I mean, they just have an obscure knowledge of movies and music. They are an all-around encyclopedia of mm-hmm. useless information. <laughs> and I say that with, with great respect because I consider myself to be almost in that realm. So, yeah. I have a lot of information in my head. I don't know if it's useless or not. but <laughs> You know, uh, it, I think there is uh, one or two stories that we didn't get to that we want to get to here really quickly. Okay. Um, what do you think police do with some of this property that they end up with, that ends up at a, a police auction? What do you think they do with it before it ends up at the auction? It's in storage, isn't it? Well, hopefully it's just in storage. Mm-hmm. But if you were somebody that was purchasing something at one of these auctions, would you be upset to find out that maybe they were using it for their own personal use? Hmm. That depends on what it is. And I'm not saying that's what's happening, but uh, the uh, Saginaw County, Michigan Sheriff's Department has yet to explain how 56,000 miles were added to the odometer of a classic muscle car that it seized and held for over a year before selling it. See, now that would be a bit much. Yeah. So they're they're denying that uh, anything shady was going on. On September 13th, it was reported that 56,000 miles had been added to a 1965 Chevy Nova SS, which was owned by... By uh, Shiawassee County couple Gerald and Royetta Ostapow while it was in the possession of the department after it was seized in a drug raid. Hmm. hmm. Joyride. Hmm. wonder what's going on there. Yeah. It reminds me of the movie Ferris uh, Bueller's Day Off. Exactly. Yes. Where I Ferris. Take, abs- I need to take my kids to school. Has anybody got a car? <laughs> well, if you're going to abscond, uh, that's. That is the type of car that you want to you want to make a getaway in, yeah. <laughs> so as you know, we like to end the show here with our hero story of the day, and uh, this is this is another great one. Roberto Serrano was driving near the freeway in Houston, Texas, when he spotted a boy running running on and along the roadway. The five year old boy was wearing only his underwear. Serrano got to him just in time. I grabbed him, and we both fell, and the truck stopped right next to us," said Serrano. 
After the ordeal, police reunited him with his father at their home just a few blocks away from where he was caught. His father says he has behavioral problems. He runs away from school. He runs away from here. Uh, Chavez, uh, Richard Chavez is, is the, the boy's single father. He says that Alex takes off for medical re- and for medical reasons, he is not able to run after him. Alex got a head start and Chavez went looking for him in his car. Chavez was incredibly grateful to Robert for stopping and helping his son. So way to go. Uh, Roberto Serrano, you're the hero of the day for doing the right thing, for seeing a problem, for taking the initiative, for not being uh, the person to pass up uh, the person in need and, and being the good Samaritan. And I think a lot of time that happens when we see an issue that needs to be dealt with, but we just think, well, somebody else will come along and deal with it. But no, You took the initiative and you did the right thing. So thank you for being our hero of the day. Well, that's it, folks. That is uh, the wrap-up for the Matt Townsend Show. We're going to be here all week, Mattless, Dr. Mattless, but we're still going to have a good time. We'll keep bringing the movie reviews and and, uh, sharing the important news stories that you need to know about. Until tomorrow, make sure that uh, you are emotionally mature and that you're getting enough exercise, and we'll... Talk to you tomorrow.